up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Don't Give Up the Shit Podcast. It's episode 52. Uh, today I'm doing an interview with uh, BMC Jason Thompson. He's a guy that I connected with through the Saving Sailors platform. I've talked about a few times on the podcast. Check it out. Uh, they got a group on Facebook uh, and then a page you can like uh, and kind of follow what they're doing. It's a, uh, it's a pretty cool group um, started by a handful of people that just wanted a a safe place for sailors struggling with mental health issues to be able to get together, uh, talk productively, uh, support each other. It's kind of just like a support structure um, for those people. And I just stumbled upon it because I follow like every single thing (laughs) on uh, Facebook that has anything to do with sailors or the Navy or whatever. And so it just got suggested to me and I've encountered uh, some pretty amazing people through this group and I'm going to be talking to a few of them, but uh, chief Thompson was the first one. And uh, just the, the interview itself was amazing. Uh, I had a, a ton of fun doing it, which didn't surprise me really just with based on my interactions with him. But I, this is legitimately one of the funnest interviews I've ever done. Um, and I got a lot out of it. Uh, it I love learning things. I learned stuff from pretty much every guest, but this one was just different in a really good way. Um, I it's hard it's hard for me to even describe, so I'll just I'll just save it for you uh, to listen to the interview. But before I get to that, I want to do two things. One is I want to express that I am not a mental health professional. Neither is Chief Thompson. This is simply a discussion of. Uh, experiences a a person and a sailor and a chief had in his life and the lessons that he learned from it. I, again, like that, not a mental health professional and I am certainly not dispensing mental health advice. Neither is chief Thompson. Uh, Be aware of that. Again, just a discussion of lessons learned. Uh, I put a bunch of resources in the show notes. If you are struggling with mental health, highly encourage you to seek out that help and leverage those resources and then the second thing is, uh, I, I want to read something that I, I've shared it on the uh, on the social media platforms in the past. It was something that kind of got a conversation going between him and I before he went on deployment where he posted something about uh, an experience of his that just based on the way it was written and the what he was willing to share uh, struck pretty hard with me. And I, I, it was something really amazing that I wanted to share. And he was willing to do that and put his name on it and have the discussion that you're about to hear. So I'm going to read this, uh, this for you real quick. This is a story from, from chief Thompson. So it goes, my last morning at Cedar Hills rehabilitation hospital in Portland, Oregon is one forever burned into my prefrontal cortex. The hospital houses severely ill mental health patients, men and women of mild and recoverable illness and military folks. Facilities like this separate the military patients from the others because we're geared somewhat differently, which is to say some folks are recovering from PTSD stemming from childhood abuse, while others are recovering from PTSD because they accidentally killed an Iraqi family of four with a hand grenade. That's not to say one is better or worse, but that different treatment options are necessary. Because there are four groups of people, the eating arrangements require some time management skills. The cafeteria opens at 6, and because the military is accustomed to waking up at pre-dawn hours, we get to eat first. Right after us comes the severely mentally ill. These poor souls aren't leaving the hospital anytime soon. This sometimes leads to moments of profound gallows pole comedy. For example, during one traffic jam of a morning, the cafeteria opened 10 minutes late. Normally not such a bad thing, but the orderlies in charge of the long-term inpatient ward didn't get the memo. 
Cut to me and my friend Mitch, an army ranger from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, finishing up our breakfast as the severely disturbed came in for a little eggs and bacon. Mitch got up to refresh his morning coffee, and he left his banana on his tray. A young man sat down across from me next to where Mitch's tray was. He looked at the banana, looked at Mitch, looked at me, picked up the banana, broke it in half, and jammed both ends into his mouth. Mitch returned with a full cup of coffee, immediately noticing something was awry. One need not be Sherlock Holmes to deduce what happened. The guy was still chewing and had pieces of banana in his scraggly beard. Dude, did you just eat my banana? Upon hearing Mitch's question, the young, mentally ill patient stood up, fashioned the banana peel onto his head as if it were a hat, and shouted to no one in particular, I ain't afraid of shit. To which Mitch said, I, uh, yeah, I believe you. Uh, Time to go, fellas, said our orderly. It's moments like that I will always remember with great reverence, which leads me to my last day inside the ward, one more morning to escape without incident, one more morning to savor the genuine hilarity stemming from the combined effects of the worst days of our lives. Our greatest invention to quell the melancholy low tide of human existence is humor. So I'm sitting at the morning breakfast table, and it was a ghostly midwinter morning when no one is talking. We were all just admiring the fresh Oregon snow and quietly eating. The only loudness was coming from the cafeteria workers' radio, which was pulsing with the local FM classic rock station morning show. The cafeteria workers themselves are the kind of guys you'd expect to work in a mental health work cafeteria starting at 4 in the morning each day. Questionable facial hair choices, swap me tattoos, and hair nets. You get the idea. One of my favorite orderlies, an army vet named Danny, showed up to deliver some news. Jason, the van is all set to take you to the airport whenever you're finished. Thanks, bro. I appreciate it. I already said my goodbyes to the lunatics with whom I was eating my breakfast. Anyone who's served knows definitively that a tremendous bond can be formed in a truly short amount of time, and I was going to miss these nutjobs. We had created understanding beyond the uniform, beyond the bullshit facades we all raised to protect our fragile egos, and headlong into the real human characters inside. I looked down the row of these PTSD sufferers, these recovering drug abusers and alcoholics, these thoroughly run through human beings and noticed they were all nodding their heads in unison to the music blasting out of the radio. Military training must have kicked in and they were all in step, just bopping along. I looked at Danny and he looked back at me. I couldn't help but roar. The song? Ozzy Osbourne's Crazy Train. And that's the... <laughs> that was the social media post that, that I saw, I read, I was immediately drawn to uh, and reached out to Jason to ask if he was okay with me sharing it because it was in the group, which is kind of private. Uh, and he was more than willing to let me do so, even volunteering to to let me put his name on it so that sailors would understand that an experience like that can happen and a sailor can recover from it. Uh, and now Chief Thompson is back on active duty uh, doing what chiefs do. Uh, and it was a really cool interview. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I hope you do too. Check it out. All right, man. Well, like we talked about, uh, just start with your background, experience in the Navy, uh, what you've done leading up to this point, who you are, where you're from, stuff like that. And then we'll lead into the uh, kind of the how you ended up, where you were in the story that I read in the intro and go from there. To begin, I don't recommend anyone take my career path. Uh, it was very <laughs> unorthodox. Uh, my name is Chief Bosun's mate, Jason Thompson. Uh, I work with Amphibious Construction Battalion 1 in Coronado. July will be 22 years of active duty service for me. Um, I do have regrets, but joining the Navy wasn't one of them. 
uh, if we're going to be clear about that. Uh, all my regrets are of a personal nature. Yeah. I don't regret <laughs> my time in service. I don't regret wearing the uniform or the things that I've done. Um, I've been four different career fields in the Navy. Um, five, if you count, undesignated seamen. Um, so I was an undesignated seaman. I was a quartermaster, a journalist, an MC, and then a bosun's mate. And I'm wow. a chief as a BM1. Um, that brings me to the present day. How did that progression happen? <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. I didn't know that until right now. So I'm like, I'm, I, I got a buddy that uh, I'm going to talk to you soon that was a, uh, he was an aviation bosun's mate on a carrier, wanted to be a nuke, and everybody told him he was too dumb. So he, of course, goes and becomes an amazing nuke. Uh, of course. He, he was an ET. Um, they call him um, radiological controls division, I think. And then uh, he was a new ET for most of his career. Did a, they call it an engineering department master chief tour? Two of them on submarines had some personal issues that affected work performance and uh, was uh, DFC'd from a job. And then they, because of that, he was removed from the new community and is now moving into, uh, he's an aviation electrician, I think. So he's going to a helicopter squadron. I'm like, holy crap, man, we need to talk because that's that adventure of just like all the lessons learned and how you adapt to all those changes and stuff. Like how, how did you end up progressing through all those career fields? Well, I started off as a sailor and I always meant to be a sailor. That was always the goal. Um, and so I didn't mind the rate changes. And to be fair, I get bored easily. Um, yeah, me too. So back in the day when you could still just strike for a rate, uh, I did. I enjoyed my time in deck on board the USS John Paul Jones, um, but it was time to go do something else. Right. And I had grown up fascinated by maps and charts and navigation and yeah. geography, knowing what the world looked like. So it was a natural fit for me to become a quartermaster and so that's what I did. But I originally came in to be a journalist and that didn't work out for me. So there used to be a program called SCORE, Selected yeah, Conversion yep. Upon... Right. So I went back to journalism A school, uh, graduated, became a journalist, went to the USS Enterprise. And then in 05 or 06, uh, all the media rates, uh, photographer's mate, draftsman, lithographer, uh, and journalists were all merged into the MC rating. So yeah, for the third yeah, time, okay. I had to change my rating badge. I was an MC for nearly 11 years, and um, I really enjoyed my time as an MC. Um, yeah. I deployed on several separate occasions. I was a, a teacher at MCA school at the Defense nice. Information School okay. in Maryland, which is where our story will actually pick up. Um, because of financial issues that I had, um, as a result of being a functional alcoholic, I mm -hmm. blew a security clearance and had gotcha. to convert to a rate that did not require security clearance. And I said, well, give me those crossed anchors. Let's see what happens. <laughs> so this was the, the conversion from MC to BM was at what point in your career? Like how, number I of years? I had been in for 16 years at that point. And you were a first class at that point, right? I was. I was an MC1 okay. wow. teaching uh, MCA school. Yes. Okay. Jeez, that's nuts, man. I wonder, we would have overlapped at some point. I'll talk to you offline, but I worked at the at CSA school, uh, which falled under, I, I think it's called something different now. It was Center for Service Support. That's and right. I think you yes. Guys, yep. You guys fell under that umbrella. <laughs> I was always on a phone con every week as the SEL of the A school with all the SELs from all the learning sites. And we always had, had you guys on the phone. So Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. Awesome. So then, so you, you cross right into BM and then what? 
And then I transferred. Um, okay, so more unorthodox <laughs> material. I um, was originally slated to go to the USS Essex, big deck amphib, uh, as a BM1. Um, I got here uh, after traveling across the country, went on the Great American Road Trip, did the whole thing. Yeah. Two days before I'm scheduled to report to the Essex, I get an email saying that my orders had been deferred. Nice. I wasn't familiar with what being deferred meant in relation to orders. So I called a friend of mine as a detailer and she said, well, basically canceled. And when she said that, immediately my mind hit overdrive because I had just driven across the country and I was like, (laughs) if you're going to send me up to you know, Washington or back to Norfolk or I, I, I'm not prepared for that. And she says, no, 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 the money is still there. So you're going to go to another ship. Okay. So from the Essex, I checked on board for about 12 hours. I transferred from the Essex to the USS Stockdale, but they were booked as well. They already had a BM one and a BMC. So there was no place for me. So I spent five and a half months on the Stockdale. And then I transferred once again to the USS San Diego, which became Jeez. my semi-permanent home. Okay. Um, and that's where I made chief and I met some fantastic people along the ride. But I was officially a part of four commands in about nine months time. Yeah. And what was the learning curve like? I'm always interested for for people that cross rate, especially late in their career. Like we had some students getting uh, PTS converted to CS for after spending 11, 12 years as an IS or as a CT or whatever. Sure. Um, what, what was the learning curve like for you going as a 16 year first class into a brand new rating? Steep and hard. Yeah. And, that, <laughs> and then you make chief a couple of, which is Jesus, that's gotta be rough. Like, sure. cause there's not like, yeah, you have naval experience and, and le- like leadership experience and all these other experiences to draw on as, as a chief, but to be the technical expert as a BMC, it's like, geez, like that learning curve has got to be rough. Well, fortunately I read and write a lot. And yeah, so, okay. um, having access to all these tech manuals and I was blessed. I, 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 I'm not a person who says that I'm, I'm not a religious guy, but, um, yeah. I lucked out, uh, however you want to call it, fate, blessing, yeah. luck, um, with a series of fantastic senior leadership and junior personnel okay. who at no point, at no point did they give me grief uh, for being a BM1 who didn't know X material. Right. That's awesome. And what's even better is they all taught me, um, showed me the ropes. They were never condescending to me. Um, and they still respected my authority as a BM1 right. uh, and then later as a chief. So, um, And what's great about it is there were uh, four distinct personnel um, who were involved in that process from a, from a junior pay grade level, all of whom are BM1s now. Nice. And That's awesome, every- man. And I bet a lot of it was your attitude in approaching it, like if, assuming you walked into it with humility and like saying like, hey, this is where I'm at. Help me. Yeah. Like <laughs> teach me. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, w- I would look at BM2 uh, Crowder, Anthony Crowder, and I'd say, I, I don't know what that means. And he goes, follow yeah. me. Come on, come on, come on. Okay. And just conducts training. That's awesome. Hey, That's exactly yeah. the reaction that should happen. Uh, and 
on top of you being willing to, to receive, because a lot of guys, especially once you put on anchors in, in a new rating, it's like you feel like you got to like fake it till you make it and you can't let on that you're a chief and you don't have the technical expertise that some of these other guys have. And it's like so like you're worried that there's going to be some chink in your armor if you if you don't like hide it and go try to figure it out on your own instead of just being humble enough to say, hey, can you teach me how to do that? I don't have any experience with that. Well, and the, the type of like like capital that you gain by doing that too. Like the junior personnel are immediately going to respond. They're going to trust you more. They're going to have a great rapport with you. Like, yeah, it's, I, I, it's, that's I two Well, two things. One, I do not believe at all in faking it until you make it. I think that's yeah. how you, that's how you get people hurt. That's how you get people yeah. killed. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's how you lose. Um, that's how you lose self-respect and the respect of your peers. You can't fake it until yeah. you make it. That's right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's how you get people hurt and killed. That's how you lose self-respect. Yeah. So what you have to do is you have to do the work. Right. Yeah, you, you have to go home and study. You you have to ask questions of people in charge. My my bosun at the time was a CWO3 named Kelvin Dooley, who's now a CWO4 and on the shortlist to be the CWO5. And he will tell you that there was not a day that went by where I was not pestering him with questions to the point where he would have to ask me to back off because he was, <laughs> he was, you know, going, doing the, you know, going to the gym or whatever. And I had a question for him and he'd be like, boats, I, I, can I go work out please? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, all right, we'll get to it later. And then, um, Conrad Mathis was my senior chief, um, who's now a BMCM. And, uh, what's funny is he just transferred to amphibious construction battalion one. Yeah. So, um, I will be working with him again. Nice. Um, which is awesome. Um, so I was fortunate in that that command still has a fantastic reputation for building leaders, for, for training leaders. Um, for five consecutive years, we made BMCs and BM1s religiously uh, and CWO3s and CWO4s. And we made a couple of, we made a pair of ensigns as a matter of fact. So um, I, there, there is so much knowledge available to ask or available to get. You just have to be humble enough and self-aware enough to ask for it. And once you do that, I think you either consciously or subconsciously, it opens the door for other people and they want to help, which I think speaks to what Lincoln referred to as the better angels of our nature. For sure. Yeah. I've, I, I talk about that a lot in relation to submarine dolphin qualifications. It's like you spend your first year as effectively a lower form of life. And like your whole your whole job is to get your dolphins like there's some other stuff that you do, of course. Right. Like you got to qualify all these other things. But sure. uh, your primary reason for existing is to get your dolphins. And it's what what you see happen and what a lot of guys fail to understand because they think that they're worried about what people think of them because they're young. And that's it's kind of it's part of the culture too, is that like the people are very judgy about it, but it's like they, um, what is that noise? Oh, I'm sorry. That's me uh, stirring. Coffee. Are you stirring? Oh, no worries. <laughs> um, it was, uh, they, it, if, if you are open to help and they see you working really hard to get it done, they want to help you. Like as soon as they see you're motivated and that you really want it and that you're taking it seriously, you'll see all the like senior seconds and uh, first classes start rallying around those guys. Funny how that um, works. Yeah, it's it is <laughs> it is, and we so I always that's one of the first things I would brief the brand new guys that I would get is like the harder you work on this, and the more you let them see you working really hard on it, even if you're struggling to grasp the information, and even if you're 
uh, having a hard time finding the things or getting the checkouts. It's like if they see you constantly working on it and you're constantly asking for help and questions and you're walking through the spaces, finding the components and whatever, they're going to rally around you and start helping you. Like as soon as they see that you care and that you get it and that you're taking it seriously, they're all just going to start helping you out. So, And the same thing applies to our own mental health. Yeah. We all fight unseen battles. For but sure. if you make that, and it is admittedly a gutsy, gutsy choice to go talk to somebody about it or let it be known that you're having these problems, we start to find that there are more people willing to help than not. Yeah, that was something that shocked me when. So the I had a I had an issue early on in my career, but it was it was something that I bounced back from pretty quickly. It was more, it was stress based, and the stressor was removed pretty quickly, but. The second time was I got uh, cheated on by my ex-wife and the whole personal life exploded. So uh, when that happened, it was shocking to me how many people um, because I had I had uh, I was a first class eligible for chief at the time. And first, my cob pulls me in, who's effectively our CMC in a submarine, um, pulls me in and tells me about his experience uh, there for me day or night. Call me. Don't do anything stupid. Like, we're all here for you, blah, 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 which. I hadn't really experienced that kind of chain of command support before. So I was pretty floored when, when that happened. And then another chief uh, who he was a type, he was an electrician. He was a type of dude uh, that like just had a scowl on his face all the time. Uh, barely, yes, I, know, I know these guys. Yes. <laughs> barely said two words to me the entire time I'd been on the submarine. Uh, and I was on watch one day and he walks up to me and he goes, Hey, if you uh, ever need to talk about anything, man, I'm here. Just come find me and we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, I went through something real similar and I, I have a lot of experience in what you're going through. And I was just like, what? Like like that already after the first sentence was more words than he'd ever said to me on top of which. I was just going like, to say that. Yes. <laughs> he looked like he wanted to murder me at all times. So I'm just like, <laughs> OK. And so I went back to the engine room one day and talked to him and uh, it helped out a lot. And then based on their pushing and their support, I went out of my I went and talked to the chaplain. I went and talked to a fleet and family support counselor like half a dozen times. I went I was talking to my mom constantly. So I was getting it out of my head and like getting it into impartial observers ears and letting them digest it and like say things back to me that would trigger me like, oh, okay, I didn't think about it that way or like, oh, okay, I can probably let that thing go or oh, I can move on from that or progress or whatever it was. It was like just healthy to get it out of my head and like say it out loud a bunch of times. And the more I did, the more I felt like I was decompressing and stuff. And I think that was probably the healthiest thing that I did because I've talked to other people that like, oh, no, I just tried to deal with it myself and I self-destructed. And it was just like, I think I just got super lucky that those people were there for me and willing to push me like to get those to reach out to those like entities. And then they gave me the time to do it and, and everything else. So um. General Mattis, I think, I think it was General Mattis uh, who once said, you can't just rely on your own brain power. You have to rely on the brain power of everybody in the room. Right. And that applies not only to military exercises and operations, but also to our personal lives. Yeah. And once we start to realize that there are people who have experience in this realm, because Let's be realistic. Mental health problems are inherently personal and they make us self-isolate. Yeah. And once we start to branch out and reach out, and it again, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to do it initially, but then it gets easier and easier. And then you start to realize, wow, I'm not the only one messed up. In fact, yeah. that guy is just <laughs> as messed up, if not worse. Yeah. And we're united in this, this whole community of people who are banged up. And yeah. 
I think if you're doing any kind of real living at all, you're going to get banged up. For sure. Emotionally, physically, yeah. spiritually. Yeah, you're going to get dinged up. And, and that comes, that's the high cost of living. Yeah, but it's like, and it's like, I think the the way that you, I don't know, like you pull the life lessons out of that living and the and the high cost involved is by talking about it and working through the the experiences that cause those scars. It's like if you don't, because if you don't, it's like, yeah, you did some cool stuff, but did you pull everything you all the goodness you could out of that experience? Eh, I don't know, like, because there's definitely times where I've looked back at experiences and pulled new lessons out of them because I related them to new ones that I did that with. And it was just like, oh, holy crap. Like, I wish I would have known that 10 years ago. I'm a big believer in um, emptying the tank. And oh, God, I think I first heard that phrase when Springsteen was getting uh, a Kennedy Center award, Mm -hmm. uh, a lifetime achievement. award. I'm a big Springsteen fan. And um, (laughs) John Stewart came out to uh, to make some comments, and John Stewart's supernaturally funny. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, he, and the moments of levity got out of the way. But he said one of the reasons I admire this guy is because he empties the tank. He empties the tank every night for his fans, for his yeah. family, for his country, and that really resonated. And I, I still watch that YouTube clip; it's fantastic. But I believe in emptying the tank, and I'm the kind of person who will go until I fall down from exhaustion. Yep. Um, and that includes, <laughs> that includes self-destructive behavior. I mean, yeah. if I, if I find myself locked into that self-destructive mode, I know that I have to get out of that. Otherwise I am going to fall down and yeah, it's going to be hard. <laughs> it's funny that you say fall down. Like I, I, people ask me, I stopped drinking when I was 24 okay. and people ask me why I don't drink really. And it's not like I never drink, but it's, it's almost never. Right. And uh, it's because I like when I would drink, I drank I, from 21 to 24. I drank to fall down like that was sure. like I don't social drinking is not a thing that I do. Like It's just <laughs> right. like if I'm going to drink, I'm drinking till I fall down. Yeah. And it's we're, not we're going all in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like if I'm partying, I'm going to be standing on top of the table dancing with my shirt off. Like that's yes. just how this is going to go down. So I just I couldn't do it anymore, man. I got to a point where I couldn't like recover anymore. It was affecting other things. And it wasn't like. Thank God it wasn't because my parents were both alcoholics, but um, mm, it was yes. some. There it was something that a hereditary trait there. Yeah, yeah. Which my brothers had issues with it too, and for some reason, because I was always scared, that's why I didn't. I didn't drink until I turned twenty one. Um, and the only reason I did is because it's what everybody else was doing when I joined the navy. So it's of like, course, right, right. Well, yeah. Uh, and so I, when I started, I was still I kind of eased into it because I was terrified I was going to get addicted, but I didn't, and I never had a problem with that. I just had a problem with like. I just didn't understand social drinking. I'm like, no, nah, like we're going to fall down, man. Like this is what we're doing. Like I'm drinking until I'm having a, a ton of fun, which generally it, it's the 1960s. Down. The world is a hotel room <laughs> and the who are in town. We're doing this. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, right, so yeah, that's hilarious. Moon, I'm, yeah. I'm the same way too. Cause like I, I was talking to my uh, dad yesterday about like the whole cancer diagnosis and also the crap and how it's affecting my career going forward, which probably it, it's still a lot of it's up in the air because the treatment hasn't all happened yet, but um, looks like I'm never going to see again, which means I'm probably going to retire. But um, we're talking about if I, if I was able to go back to see as a cob, which would be my next sea duty. um, I was like, I'm kind of scared of it in a way, because like you were saying, like, I don't know how to not empty the tank. Like I don't know how to do the job any other way. And I'm, I'm getting married soon. I'm about to have kids finally. And it's just like, 
I don't, I don't balance well. I just don't like when I'm, when I'm doing a job like this, like they're going to get my everything. And so it's like, I can't give my everything to my family and to the Navy and to whatever else needs it. It's like only, I can only shoot that bullet once. So it's like, how am I, how am I supposed to do this? It's particularly interesting from a social dynamic that we promote people quickly who do empty the tank. Yeah. And the higher up they climb, the bigger their tank gets because it's forced to be because now you're caring not just for yourself or a division or a platoon, but now you have a department or, you know, in the case of a cob, an entire boat. Yeah. And so that's, that's 300 personnel who have problems, who have issues that all need attention right now. And if you're going to empty the tank, that means there's nothing left for you at the end. Right. Which and for a then, person who's about to be married and about to have children, that's not realistic. That's right. not a real thing, man. Exactly. And that becomes self-destructive because if my like if my whole personal life explodes, it's going to affect my my work life and everything else, too. And then, yeah, it's just I'm just not willing to go down this road again, I don't think. So it's like, how do how do I even continue? So it might you know, be a blessing in disguise in a way that I'm, I'm kind of my hands getting going to get forced, I think. But well, and we as, shall as a see. person. I, I grew up in the Jewish faith and um, mm. uh, like my friends, the Catholics, there's a lot of guilt that comes with that. Yeah. And um, when you start to fail at something, you know, you're good at inherently, you start to feel guilty and that uh, you know affects your self-worth and your self-esteem. So that tanks and then your work performance tanks because you feel worthless and then your ability to help other people gets affected. So I think as, as a natural born fatalist, um, I have always known that the last salute comes for all of us. Yeah. And one day my grandkids will find a uniform hanging in the closet and they'll say something along the lines of, oh, grandpa, you were a sailor once. Yeah. And um, I'll just be a guy who was in once upon a time. Yeah. And that's I, I'm I'm slowly making that mental course correction, I guess, where it's like I just it's taken me a really long time to like process it all I guess where it's like because I've always said that it's not who I am it's what I do and I, I've I've tried really hard to cling to that mantra but at the same time I'm finding out how much of this is woven in you know what I mean like I, I'm I, as I'm trying to adjust my worldview it's like I'm finding out that there's a lot I've never done anything this long before I've never I've never like been so emotionally invested in a thing before um besides besides people that I love, you know, like I just, I've never, so it's kind of almost like that where I'm like having this, this internal dialogue about letting some, somebody go. That's that important. You know what I mean? Like where it's like, it's almost like losing a person that I'm really close to. I'm like, God, I don't know if I like, I don't know how to do this voluntarily. This, Um, this becomes, I mean, it it is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It becomes um, almost a business. It becomes nearly a religion for a lot of people and walking away from any one of those three things is, very difficult. Yeah, it's it's proving to be harder than I thought it would be. But at the same time, it's like I, I I'm a big Jocko Willink fan. I don't know if you're familiar with his sure. his stuff, but he uh, he talks a lot about veterans getting out of the military uh, often find themselves going astray because they they no longer have a mission, right? Like you're never going to find, uh, well, not never, but there's probably some jobs out there, but where you're going to find that same type of purpose and like right. the mission that that they feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves and they're and they're contributing and they're helping and that camaraderie and and everything that comes along with this gig it's like 
you got to find a new mission when you get out so that you can you can stay balanced and focused and healthy. And it's like it's a lot of guys don't and a lot of girls don't. And it's like then you then they find themselves in self-destructive cycles where they they don't have the the work feeling of self-worth and everything else. And I'm really lucky that I started doing this podcast thing, man. And all it was was an extension of me chiefing like I just <laughs> had a bunch of ace had a bunch of A school kids that needed help and they kept Facebook messaging me about like, how do I do this? How do I adjust to this? How do I like grow into this leadership role or whatever? And a lot of the questions were super similar. And I'm just like, well, if they have this problem, every junior sailor has this problem and I need to force multiply myself because I couldn't find any resources because I wanted to like refer them somewhere instead right. of it just coming from me in there. I couldn't find anything. And outside of like command delivered PON doc, which is generally a punchline, <laughs> it's like I could like what else? Where else are they going to get these leadership lessons? So I was, just, this is how this all happened, and it just evolved into this thing that I'm super passionate about doing, and I get to continue that as I retire. And I'll so I'll always have the connection. It'll free me up to do a ton of other things that I can't do right now, just b- bandwidth based. And because there's some situations that'd be super awkward if, as an active duty Navy senior chief, I was like reaching out to certain people and saying, Hey, want to do a podcast with me? So I haven't like, there's certain lines I'm not willing to cross while I'm on active duty, but I think that's um, reasonable and fair. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, you, so, know, I, you, you said something that I'm going to steal. Um, you said sure. I had to force multiply myself. Yeah. And it, my man, Tom Robbins, um, who's not the actor, the writer, um, yeah. that's Tim Robbins, Shawshank Redemption. Um, yeah. Tom yeah. Robbins said, you know, the price of self-destiny is never cheap. And in certain situations, it is unthinkable, but it's precisely the unthinkable that must be thought if we're going to achieve the marvelous. And that's not, I like that a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a heavy one. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and force multiply myself speaks to that because that's the price of self-destiny and it's going to cost time. It's going to cost human capital. It's going to cost energy. Um, hopefully it doesn't cost you much money. Um, yeah, (laughs) but that's the reality of it. You have to force multiply yourself. You have to find a thing. And I talked to a lot of sailors who got out after their four or their six, whenever their commitment was over. Yeah. And they often have the, the same struggles that you were talking about. And um, they don't know what their purpose is. And I said, man, in listening to you talk, it seems like you really see a lot of things that you want to get involved with that, that you see that want to make a change. But right now, you're wallowing in self-pity with a bottle of booze rather than reaching out to Amnesty International right, or the World Health Organization or yeah. a, place where you, a place where you can go volunteer. Uh, and maybe work yourself into a position. I don't know. But there are so many organizations out there that require us to look past ourselves. Yeah. And so many junior sailors, once they leave, and junior service members, I don't want to isolate it to just sailors. So many ju- right. junior service members don't see that avenue. And I of, I think a lot of it purpose. is, yeah, it's like an imposter syndrome feeling where it's like, because I, I had a lot of... Like I came up with this idea and then as I started to think about it, I was like, who am I to like tell anybody to do anything in the way that I'm going to be communicating this? And it kind of freaked me out a little bit because when I realized once you put something on the Internet, man, it's like it's there forever. <laughs> like everybody oh. gets to listen to it and judge it and whatever. And so I was yeah, like, my, my ex-wife knows all about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of fear of like how the chief's mess would interpret it, how. Uh, other people, sailors that have been around a while, whatever, would 
would take it as a, like I'm asserting myself as some authority in in leadership development and in like all things Navy and whatever. And luckily, I had the presence of mind to send out the introduction episode to a bunch. I just was like, I'm going to send it out to a bunch of people that I trust and that I think are really intelligent and like good leaders or great sailors. And it, I did it across like a spectrum. It was like half a dozen people. And it was like uh, one of my best A school students that was probably a third class at the time. Uh, a second class, I think uh, a guy I made senior chief with a chief that I put through the season. And uh, I think one of my buddies is a veteran that got out. Uh, it was on my first boat. And I was like, am I out of my mind or is this a good idea? <laughs> like, Just listen to it. Tell me if I'm stupid. And it was universally like, holy crap. No, this is a great idea. You should definitely do this. I wish this was around when I was in that kind of thing. And I was just like, OK, uh, all right, let's let's do it and just see what happens. And well, here's uh, what happens. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's interesting. Um, OK, so, God, there's so many thoughts that I have flooding through my mind right now. <laughs> Ira Glass. Um, yeah. The uh, the senior producer and host of This American Life, uh, which is one of the all time great podcasts, and they were they were doing podcasts before anybody knew what the hell a podcast was. Yeah. Was talking about people who get into an inventive, creative endeavor, and mm-hmm. the vast majority of them stop, and they stop because they have good taste, and the quality of their work does not match their taste. Yeah. I know a lot of uh, fledgling stand-up comedians who stopped because they did not become George Carlin or Dave yeah. Chappelle. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, George Carlin didn't become the George Carlin that we knew until he was in his 40s. Right. And he, and he had, you know, 25 years of stage presence, you know, behind him. And that's 25 years of living. That's 25 years of writing. That's 25 years of doing the job. And so people give up because their taste doesn't match the quality of their output. But then yeah. it's like it's like a good golf shot. Like you get that one and that gives you enough of a taste to keep going. Yeah. And eventually what you find is when you stop trying to cop other people's styles or be the next so-and-so, you become the first you, yeah. which – lends a measure, a great measure of authenticity to, to what you're doing. And then suddenly you just find yourself being good. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> like I I don't I wasn't ever trying to copy anybody really like. Right. Because I, I didn't really listen to a ton of podcasts when I started. I had just gotten into them, which is the only reason I had the idea. And then I but I definitely I kept going because of feedback. Like if I hadn't gotten a whole bunch of positive responses and feedback from people that were listening and stuff like that, where, cause that's like, a, I, people thank me for, for doing this and it's great, but like, it's like a drug, man. Like, like oh, getting, yeah. getting that type of a response from somebody where they're just like, Oh my God, thank you so much for doing this. This helped me so much, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, I, I, it's a selfish endeavor to me, like where it's like, I'm doing it. Because that feeling is addicting. Like it's like I, I I love helping these people with whatever I can because when I get that response, it's just like, oh my God, this is so cool. Like that I get to be this person to them, like that I get to be this resource. And I mean, just like God, I could have only published the Chiefs package episode and that would have been enough, <laughs> man. Because that one is like every year I, I re reshare everything and all these first classes that are pulling chunks of their hair out right. that are board eligible are just like, oh my, thank God there's something out here that tells me what I'm supposed to do with my hands. So yeah, man, it's like, that's what kept me going. Um, well, and then the other part of this, and I think is really relevant and um, it, it comes on the heels of, of, of his passing, Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not a Lakers fan. Uh, I'm not even a big basketball fan, but I'm a Kobe Bryant fan. Yeah. Because he was willing to put in the work that no one else was willing to do. Yeah. And he used to get up at four o'clock every morning and go to the gym. Actually, he would get up early. He would be in the gym at four o'clock, put in two hours of, of, of practice, and then start his morning. Yeah. And he said, over time, that doesn't seem like much. Over the course of a season, that's not a whole lot. But what you are doing is you're tacking on two additional hours of practice every day so that by the time you hit year eight, year nine, year 10, suddenly you've been practicing tens of thousands of hours more than your competition. Right. And then that shows. That starts to show. So not that as a podcast, you're trying to compete with Joe Rogan. It's not right. you know, different, different avenues. Yeah. But the more we practice at this, the better we get. It's like chiefing. The more you practice yeah. at this, the more you're doing the job, the better you're going to get so that you're not looking over your shoulder for somebody else to help you out. You've put the experience in, you know what needs to happen now. Yeah. And that just comes from doing the work and having that ferocious work ethic. You know, it's funny, people like you and I with addictive personalities, why does that always come with a with a predilection for drugs or alcohol and not like <laughs> and not like sound financial planning and, and Pilates, you know? I mean, yeah, I it can, I think. Like I definitely uh I've never woken up and been like, hey, where did this yoga mat come from? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, in ways, I relate. Like Joe Rogan actually talks about it a lot where he's like, I got to be careful what hobbies I get into because I get so I get like addicted, essentially, where it's like I, he's like, I don't know how to di- how to not dive in with both feet and do it a thousand percent. Um, like he talks about video games, like it'll just, he's like, I'll just lose my whole day uh, every day. And then like, <laughs> Holy God, I put a hundred hours in this week and it's like, what am I doing? Right. So I, uh, I, I do that with certain things. I don't think I do it to the extent that he describes, but like, I definitely like, I'll get into a thing and, and, but I'm also like, I have a short attention span too. So like, so like, I'm kind of like you where it's like, I'll, I'll shift gears eventually. Like I, right. uh, even if it's something that I do for years and it's like, I never really lose it never really loses its appeal overall, but I just, I kind of get to a point where I'm like, okay, it's time for something new. Um, it's cause I, I did Olympic weightlifting for probably four years and it was like, and I still love doing it, but it's like, I'm not like I was constantly doing it and all my free time. I was either studying or like doing technique work or I was at the gym and it was just like all of my free time was Olympic weightlifting. And now it's like, I do it. It's part of my fitness routine, but it's not this. I don't have that same like borderline addiction to it. <laughs> well, and, and at the same uh, so, time yeah. too, like that's, that's a field of endeavor that, that takes a physical toll on you as well. For, yeah, you know, for and, sure. I, and I, and I think did. as you, yeah, as you start to reach a certain age, you're like, I just want to have a couple slices of pizza and a beer, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's let's shift gears now. I want to get okay. into. So I, I I read that post that I shared of yours in the intro. Um, oh, on the uh, the Saving Sailors. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah, the one from the Saving Sailors group that where you just described a, the a day. It was kind of two different days, but you described a day uh, during your treatment and then the last day. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I kind of want to get into like first at like at what point and in your career and then like how did you end up in in that situation and then we'll go, we'll go through it. I'm sure like, but like kind of what you got out of it, uh, how your perspective changed going in to coming out leadership wise and like some of the lessons learned from that experience. Oh, wow. It's Um, a lot there. I know we'll, we'll unpack it as we go, but. Okay. (laughs) Um, well to begin, um, I, I recommend 
um, mental health checks and therapy for everybody. For sure. I mean, everybody. Yeah. Um, I, I don't care who you are. Um, like we said, if you're doing any measure of living whatsoever, that's going to come with some scars. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's something that it's, it's, I, I see it becoming more normalized, I guess. I don't know if it's, it's normalized, but it's like trending that direction. I think, um, I, I, I think, um, we, we personally as, uh, senior enlisted leaders, but also as adults in the modern world have to recognize that there are two avenues right now. There is the avenue that social media gives us where um, there's praise for admitting having a mental health illness or having a mental health struggle. There's not nearly enough praise for actually doing something about it, but it's become trending to definitely seek treatment, which is a step in the right direction. That's what we need you to do. We need you to stop posting about it and actually do the work. But again, that, that comes back to what we were talking about. And I think in talking to a lot of people in my private life, some of whom were and were not sailors, they're hesitant to, to go get therapy because what it really boils down to is they just don't have the stones to do the work, yeah. to admit culpability in some situations yeah. To, and to hold themselves accountable for their actions. Yeah. Yep. And, and yeah. that's, that, that's, <laughs> that's why I love arm. Jocko and extreme ownership so much is because it's when, when that switch flipped in my head, it like, it changed so many like mechanisms through which I view the world and what happens in it. Like I just, the ability to just be like, no, that, no, that's me. That's my fault. I own that. Even, even if it's something that I could very easily like distribute (laughs) responsibility or culpability (laughs) to all these other people and probably not be all the way wrong about it. Like just owning it all the way. uh, Like there's, I've never, it's, I've never found any other mechanism that has like changed positively so many things with which I like, interact through like interact with the world through like the, just the way that I look at it, the way that I interact with it and people in it and situations in it. It's just the ability to take ownership of that stuff is huge. I think what we find is, uh, Oh, I think I lost you for a second there. Oh, it, it, yeah. Sometimes it kind of cuts in and out a little bit. I think what we have is a sort of admiration for those willing to stand up and say, yeah, this one's on me. And as long as we're not talking about, you know, a misdemeanor or a felony crime of some sort, yeah, you find that there's really not a whole lot of negative repercussions. Now, yeah, sometimes it might result in a counseling statement or you have to have a difficult conversation with your boss. But really, most of the time, if you drop the ball on something, you just have to admit that. And then people are like, oh, okay, okay, blame yeah. assigned. Now let's move on with the day and let's solve the problem, which actually speaks more to uh, the, the Japanese business strategy as opposed to the American business strategy in that Americans are always trying to find the, the blame. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the first instinct in a Japanese businessman's mind is to find the problem and, and end the problem, and then they'll worry about the blame. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if we find a nice, if we spend more time Focusing on on foc- uh, on finding solutions to complicated problems and, and less time worrying about the blame will be better, and it'll be better for our individual mental health. 
Um, but yeah, I think we all subconsciously are looking for somebody to go, okay, yeah, this one's on me. And yeah. when we as individuals do that, we pop the balloon and everything's fine now. Yeah. You just take it on the chin and move on. And it's like, yeah, you're right? not going to remember in a week, the conversation that you had where you were taking it on the chin. Like I, I've been in my CEO state room more times than I can count where he was telling me I screwed something up and, and I'm yet yeah, Roger that, sir. I, that's my bad. I failed to communicate or I did this or I did that. And it was like, sometimes it went well. Sometimes he didn't even buy it. And he was telling me that I like, like next time I remember a conversation vividly where he was like, next time, just tell me to go F myself. Like if you don't want it, like if we had these conversations and like, it was a miscommunication. I, I think like I, I talked to a bunch of people and I was like, did I miss something in a meeting? Cause he was telling me that he said these things in meetings. And I'm like, right. I asked like five different people that were in the same meeting and none of them caught it either, but he wasn't, he wasn't talking to them. So maybe I just missed it, but well, I, was, and, and I, and I just owned it. And, but you don't, you don't remember in that situation. No, you don't. And when we yeah. get stuck in that situation, it's important to remember Lieutenant Aldo rain from inglorious bastards, you know, <laughs> I've been shoot out before. Yeah. You know? and <laughs> Better men have tried and failed. Like, you know, it's, I it's, mean, as a I'm chief, good. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take it and that's fine because I'm a chief and I'm retirement eligible and I'm, I'm yep. privately wealthy and I'm going to be fine. <laughs> I'm not worried about it, you know? And yeah. I think when junior sailors realize that, um, you're willing to take the heat, um, up front, you know, and then train accordingly, you know, ex post facto, um, it really lets them know that it's okay. Yeah. And I think, and I, I've had these conversations with, with junior seamen. In fact, I had one just not too long ago. I said, look, you're a seaman. It's unreasonable of me to expect you to know what a BM three or a BM two would know more to the point. I know that you're going to make mistakes. I know you're going to screw up. You don't know it yet, but I know it's going to happen. What's important is that you learn from that mistake. In fact, what I need you to do is make mistakes faster because the faster you make those mistakes, the more we can clear out for good productive habits. Yeah. The more space we have going forward for good productive habits. So screw up faster. Now, I'm not talking about something that's going to send you to, you know, go, you know, to, to NJP, but, you know, I don't need you to go drinking underage in your barracks room. What I do need you to do is not know how to tie a bowline. I do need you to forget to mix the paint properly. Yeah. These are things that are that are common mistakes that every chief bosun's mate has dealt with since the history of the chief bosun's mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my paint, dad the made, history of paint. My, my dad made BM3 four times on a destroyer in Vietnam, <laughs> so <laughs> I know all about it. There um, you go. Yeah, so that not just like make the mistakes faster, but like own them when you do and don't hide anything. Like just come to me, say, chief, I screwed this up. What do I do? And then, right. then you're, then you're, that would even, that even be, makes the whole process of recoverability and like t- learning the lessons and moving on faster. You know, <laughs> like just don't, I don't want you hiding things. I don't want you trying to do some crazy thing you thought up in your head all on your own to try to cover it up so that maybe I won't notice. Cause, cause like today, dad, like a dad in some sitcom or <laughs> yeah, something. Cause, right? cause today you're going to be the one that gets one by on me. Cause I've never seen that before. You know, right, like don't, exactly. don't do that. Just bring it up. Let me know. and We'll move on with life. So. So uh, the situations that landed me um, at Seven West in Bethesda and at Twin Cedars Hospital uh, in Portland, Oregon. Um, To begin, I had a full-on suicidal breakdown um, somewhere between Thanksgiving and Pearl Harbor Day 
in 2012. Okay. And that was really the culmination of many factors. Okay. Um, my career had stalled. My personal life was in shambles. Okay. Um, I was drinking at a rate that would make an Irish stock worker go, hold, hold on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Slow down. Uh, Keith Richards is like, are you sure another bottle is what you need right now? And really, I had been in therapy before. Um, mm. But what I was doing was putting a Band-Aid on a gushing head wound. Yeah. I had gone to therapy and I had beaten around the bush that I had my first suicidal thought when I was eight years old. Okay. And I never addressed that. I never spoke that out loud to anybody. And when I finally had that breakdown and I was finally confronted by seven members of the Fort George G. Meade chief's mess, mm -hmm. uh, the walls came down. I was blowing big blubbery snot bubbles into people's uniforms. <laughs> I still owe Greg Curry a whole batch of ribbons because I just blew snot all over them. Um, finally, once all that nonsense and all the manufactured machismo that I had put into the world to affect an air of invincibility came crumbling down, yeah. um, I was able to actually start doing some work. Yeah. Um, very raw, very vulnerable. Um, and so I, I started making my stay uh, at Southern West in Bethesda. And along the way, you meet some interesting characters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this will all go in, you know, my my version of Catch-22 for the post-9-11 generation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you have these mandated therapy experiences. And, and at first, there's a serious pushback because now you're stuck. And you're like, I don't have a problem. And you start to readopt those old ways. Yeah. And um, my story is not at all um, original. Uh, I was raised, um, you know, in an abusive home. Um, alcoholism runs. No, alcohol doesn't run. It gallops in my family, <laughs> um, as does mental health uh, issues. Okay. And so... Um, I had neglected these things for years. And because the Navy is by and large a meritocracy, um, some people have more than they deserve. Some people have a little bit less than they deserve. But by and large, you get what you deserve. Yeah. Um, I wore the uniform all the time because I was good at being a sailor. Yeah. And I spent the first eight years of my career at sea because I did not want to go home and take the uniform off and look at the big glaring hole in myself where Jason was supposed to be. Yeah. I was just going to be Seaman Thompson or Petty Officer Thompson or whatever the rank was at that time. But then I finally got to the Defense Information School, which to be clear was my dream job yeah. um, as, as an A-school instructor. And I was good at it, man. Oh, I was man. really good at it. My favorite job to this day, man, like I nothing has been more rewarding, especially like it, even now going like I'm let's see, three, four, four and a half, five years removed. And it's like I watch it. I still watch all these kids on Facebook and they're making me first too. class. Yes, and me too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just the most rewarding job ever. But that also means that I had to come home at the end of the day and take the uniform off. And when you haven't cultivated a sense of self-worth or your sense of self-worth revolves around wearing a uniform, 
you don't know who you are. Right. And when you get bored and alcohol is accessible, man. Yeah. Oh man, it it, <laughs> it, it, it it steamrolls and it just piles on until the point where you just want to get out of work so you can get that next drink in you. Yeah. And in the process of doing all that, and in the process of staying out at sea for so long, I rejected every sense of actually taking ownership of my reactions to my mental health and doing something about it. Mm-hmm. And I can't control what happened to me. It happened to me. It was a situation that that I wasn't responsible for. And there's no reason for an adult to be the child and a child to think it's their fault. You just that's not real. Right. It's not the kid's fault. That that's absurd. It just just the notion of it now seems so patently ridiculous to me that it just doesn't make sense why someone would blame themselves for something that an owl had done to them. Yeah. So there I was. Stuck in Southern West, wearing pajamas and and very comfortable slippers, and growing a beard, and wondering what the hell happens next. Well, the work happens next, and so um, we started treatment. You know, twice a day, uh, heavy therapy, heavy therapy, twice a day, um, and then group mandated sessions, and then you know, Alcoholics Anonymous sessions, so that almost none of your life. Uh, is is not fair game, yeah. and also at the same time, you're reeling from one emotionally trying experience of opening up and explaining your situation to an hour downtime to eat your meal or go to art therapy, and then you start it again. Yeah. It's like I man, like I just can I get like an hour of like no George Carlin space. jokes? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I mean, this is all very very heavy, and then. I started to embrace the heaviness of it. Um, and that is when it got good. Yeah, I was going to ask if that was by design, like what, like the goal being to not have that white space and eventually like, like lean on you so hard that you finally like fall down and it, it gets to that place. That's, that's exactly what happened. And I was, I was having a conversation with one of my very best friends who had actually done some time in the mental health facility here in San Diego. Mm. And uh, he said, I just want you to think about the episode of the podcast that's going to come from out of this, Jason. (laughs) And I was like, huh? He goes, man, you are the guy who is as – no, you know what? You are the least interested human being I know in having small talk. Yeah. You hate small talk. I mean, he's he's absolutely right. I can't – I don't care about the weather, man. I don't care about idle chit-chat. My wife gets mad at me because we'll be out in public and it'll just be like a cashier or like a poor waiter or something. And it's like they'll say something that is intended to be that kind of like banter and I just – I can't handle it, man. Yeah, <laughs> I just, I say something snide and she's like, stop it. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so usually I, I just smile and wink uh, and nod, but that's funny. Um, he was like, dude, man, like you got nothing else to do. So why don't you just go hard? Just go heavy. Yeah. This, if, if ever there was a time to cast aside the superficial nonsense and talk about that heavy stuff, now's the time. Yeah. And I was like, all right, so I guess we're going all in. So I went in and I started sharing details of myself that I had never shared before because the last people in the world who are going to judge you are people in a mental health clinic. Right. (laughs) Kind of the whole point. 
right? And at the same time, you're like, uh, so after all the therapy sessions and after the hospital, just as an experiment, I went down to an AA meeting in Baltimore at nine o'clock in the morning. Up to that point, all the AA sessions that I had been to were in the late evenings uh, in the basement of some church or in a group mandated situation. Now, the person who goes to the to the eight o'clock AA meeting in the basement of a church is the kind of person who can still function and have a normal everyday job. Right. That's where the doctors go. That's where the lawyers go. That's where the the, the professionals go um, to embrace that mode of therapy. Mm-hmm. At nine o'clock on a Tuesday in Baltimore, <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. You're going to see some interesting people. And then you're going to start, and you don't want to judge, but it's a thing that we as humans do. You're going to be like, you know, maybe my situation's not so bad because <laughs> yeah. that guy over there has a tattoo of Liza Minnelli on his forearm and has no teeth. <laughs> and he's working on DUI number six. Yeah. Maybe, maybe my situation's not as bad as it as I thought it was. Right. Um, and I don't want to compare people's mental health struggles because that's, I know that that's rude, but that's just an example of. Yeah. It's something that's inevitably going to pop in your head though. I think it's fair to, to, to have that internal dialogue, even though you're going to fight it off and just be like, that's not fair. You know what I mean? Like, I think, right. I think sometimes people are afraid to talk about certain things for that exact reason where it's like, <laughs> it's like, well, it's not the right thing to, to say or do or to th- the right way to think about it. But like human nature, it, like you're just going to think a thing sometimes. And it's like, sure. it's OK to like have that thought and not actually like it, it be programmed into the way you view the world and how you and you're not acting on it and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's fair to to have well, that the, dialogue. The topics, of, the topics of all my favorite books were written by people who had these thoughts but didn't actually do them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean. We listen to true crime podcasts. True crime podcasts are all over the place now, but just because they have these thoughts about, hey, it would be cool to do a show about this guy or that guy, yeah. doesn't mean they're going to go on a seven-state killing spree. Right. <laughs> yeah, just exploring that, that I don't know, that event or that like uh, person's life and how why they thought the way that they did and why they did the things that they did. Like, it's just interesting. Like, it's not... Right. And I watch that to, stuff too on Netflix and stuff. Course, like I just think it's interesting. <laughs> but then yeah. we have to point that high powered finger of observation inward. Mm-hmm. And oh, that's that's when it gets good because now a pinch of opiate is probably good in times of trauma. And I understand it. We all do it. But sooner or later it comes time for real spiritualizing. Yeah. Um, which comes not by trying to cushion the brain or, or, or conceal your hurt in any way. It comes from revealing the bright lights of your soul and not merely describing them. Yeah. You have to do this thing. And if you don't, then you're shortchanging yourself. And literally, you're wasting people's time. But more importantly, you're wasting yours. Yeah. If you have a chance to really get down to the root of your problems, a, a literal two-month break with no ramifications whatsoever to your career that's paid for by somebody else, <laughs> and you don't embrace that, you're an emotional coward. Yeah. That's, and that's just yeah. real. Yeah. I, what are – and this is slightly backtracking, but like what are some of the – as far as having the self-awareness to point that finger inward and recognize some of the issues that are there and, and then subsequently dealing with them, like what are some of the, 
it's it's something that I've always struggled with as a, like a leadership development concept, right? Is okay. when you encounter those sailors that have trouble taking the ownership or have trouble self-examining or taking criticism and and just owning their mistakes, right? Like everybody, it, it's like an innate, just normal human response to get defensive and oh that no that this is what really happened. It's not my fault. Um, I, I do it like I, it's not, I, I catch myself, but it's like, cause I have the self-awareness and I've understood this and I've spent a lot of time like self-studying essentially, but like the, what are some mechanisms that, that you could share from a mental health perspective to get just a human being to identify and like start accepting that I, I have ownership in this and, and it's my responsibility to, to do the work. Take the side door. Um, Take the side door. I like it. And here's what I mean by that. Almost every time somebody deflects the blame off themselves, it's because they don't want their ego bruised. Right. And a fragile ego often stems from trauma. Not always, but often. Right. And once you've been around people who have been traumatized enough, you start to recognize these symptoms, the behavior, the way people with bruised egos carry themselves. Right. And so you realize that. And you see that thing, right? The reason that they won't accept responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so you come through the side door and you start asking questions that are tangentially related to what could possibly have caused the ego to be so sensitive and weak. And once you start uncovering those details, you can say things like, look, I don't care that you blew past this qual or you didn't do what I told you to do. What I care about is that we're going to spend far more time addressing that than we are addressing all this other nonsense as opposed to solving the issue. So just assume that I've heard a lot of terrifying things and you don't have to tell me, but I want you to know that I see what you're doing. I don't blame you, but I'm here to help if you want it. Hmm. That's super interesting that like, so I have this, uh, and I've talked about her a bunch. Um, she's a LPO that has a sailor she's dealing with that she's, she's making some progress, which is awesome. But like just having trouble getting through, having trouble motivating him, having trouble, um, understanding why he's constantly late or he's constantly, uh, out of uniform or whatever. But then like, sometimes he'll respond and he'll have a really great day and work really hard for her. And like, um, and she's, she's built trust with him to the point that like he, she's probably the only person that this kid trusts cause he has negative interactions with everybody else. But it's like the, she, she and I are both kind of convinced and I, I I've referred her to other people to like have the same conversation because I'm not, I, I'm not a mental health professional. I like, I, I don't know, but we were both kind of like, I don't, I don't know that we're the people to solve this problem. Like, I think that yeah. you're going to get him to a, a pseudo state of like semi functionality and that's his ceiling until he's willing to accept that he needs some professional help very and likely. And, and that's I, yeah, and I, I referred him, I, I referred her to a couple other people to have those conversations. Like my friend Amber's a social worker. I've done a bunch of podcasts with her and she's a little more in that space and like set immediately is where she went with it. It was like, I think that he needs to go talk to a professional. And so it's like that I, I, we were having that conversation and I was just like, she's like, how do I get him to accept that? Because I don't think that if I broached that topic, he would immediately shut down and be like, no, not interested. Mm. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you, how you have that conversation with a kid that 
seems to be in the place that he's in and to try to convince him like that. Hey, this is a good idea because he's he's barely willing to accept her help half the time. So it's like, right. Right. Well, I think. Yeah. So a lot of the things that I'm interested on a, on a, on a human level, on a personal mm. level, stem from things that my father would do um, that were subtle. Okay. Um, he would leave a book of uh, astronomy and a pair of binoculars on the, the dining room table. And I'm a naturally curious human being. So I would start reading the book and then I would go outside with the binoculars and then dad would come out and sit down with me and we would have those conversations. Or he would leave a copy of Rolling Stone back when Rolling Stone was good on the table. Mm. And I'd be like, you know, and I'd flip it open and I'd be like, dad, who's Jim Morrison? Yeah. You know, and then we would go to the record table, you know. And so by leaving things around, subtle clues that Mm. let you let the people around you know that you're available to have these conversations and yeah. that you're not embarrassed or ashamed to have these conversations yeah. will send a subconscious signal that, yeah, we can have these conversations and you've got nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. Except, uh, except uh, your own, your own demons. Yeah. And I, yeah, I like the, the, just the concept of going inside door, this, the subtlety and the like plant, it's like inception, like just planting those little things in there and letting it become their own thought. Um, I, I have a sailor who um, had some trauma as a child that he refuses mm-hmm. to talk about. And mm-hmm. um, it's very clear because um, I see those signs as plain as day. Um, some things you just cannot hide. And he's got a lousy um, self-image. Mm-hmm. Um, but one day I just told him straight up, um, he, he'd asked for some help. And I told him, it was a very specific circumstance. I said, okay, well, go talk to the new driver at the quarter deck, talk to the petty officer to watch, they'll get you squared away. Right. And he didn't. And sure enough, we had these problems. And so I brought him into the office and I said, uh, Seaman X, you're going to have to assume eventually that I am in your best interest and that I am never going to tell you to do something that's going to hurt you or embarrass you badly in any sort of serious way. And you're going to have to differentiate between advice I give you and an order that I give you. Mm -hmm. And eventually it will sink in that I am on your side and that I do not want you to get hurt or fail or screw up so badly that you suffer negative repercussions. Right. And he started to, to explain. I said, I don't, now is not the time to have this conversation. I just need you to acknowledge what I just told you. And he looked at me. And he was like, okay, chief. Yeah. And he felt relieved because I said something that he wasn't personally able to say. Yeah. And in doing that, we now have an open dialogue. That's awesome. Yeah. I've definitely not in the same exact vein, but I've definitely, I've had those types of conversations where it was just like, like I have your best interests at heart. I like, I just, I, no matter what I'm doing, whether you agree with it or not, whether you think I'm an idiot for doing it or not, I, all I'm trying to do is take care of you guys at all times. So I try to get them to understand that like with like, that's the foundation that I'm laying, right? That's, that's what I'm building off of. So when I start building off of it, if I'm doing something that's stupid, I need you guys to tell me, like, I need you, like, (laughs) I would tell them like, look, I've stood galley watch captain on a submarine for more hours than I can count, but I've never done it on this submarine where I, I, cause I went from platform to platform to platform. Sure, right, so it's yeah. like, I've never done it on a, on a Seawolf class submarine, which is what I was on and as a chief. And I'm just like, so 
I think I know a lot of stuff and I'm leveraging that experience to try to make this as easy as possible because we're doing a really hard, stressful thing. So if I'm doing something stupid, if I'm telling you to do it away and there's another way that you know to be way easier, or even if I perceive it to not be, if I was that guy, I'm not. I'm not the guy in there doing it. You're the guy in there doing it. And if there's a way that I'm going to sit there in the corner, watch you do and be like, God, that looks painful, but you're happy doing it <laughs> and it's easier for you and we're coloring inside the lines and everything's safe and it's getting done and blah, 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 then just tell me and we'll do it that way. Like if, if you're going to be in here more motivated and happier and less stressed by doing it a different way that I may not think is the best way, but we're still coloring inside the lines and whatever. Fine. Take ownership of the process and do it. But you guys got to tell me that. Like, because I'm not I'm not going to come in here and unilaterally make decisions unless it's the only avenue that I have or unless it's a safety thing or like there's some policy guiding me that like if this is the way we have to do it or whatever. It's like I, other than that, I, like there's lines we got to color inside of, but you can color however you want. I don't care. Whatever makes you happy because I want you guys happy, motivated and, and less stressed. Um, there's and, a there's a designer named uh, Bruce Mao, M-A-U. And uh, I'm not a design student. It's uh, yeah, I like looking at cool things, yes, but I wouldn't call myself a designer. But he wrote this brilliant manifesto called An Incomplete Manifesto for Growth. Mm. And I take, I, a, love I take a lot this. of notes. So go By ahead. all means, I can, I can hear your pen <laughs> Manifesto. <laughs> Every time I talk to Jeff Bayless, I end up with a page and a half of books I got to read. <laughs> <laughs> I totally get it. Oh, gross. So back-to-back things. Begin anywhere. Uh, The musician John Cage tells us that not knowing where to begin is a common form of paralysis. His advice, begin anywhere. When we started our shows, when we started our career, we just started. Just start. Yep. Just just start. Um, And then right behind that is everyone is a leader. Um, Growth happens. Whenever it does, allow it to emerge. Learn to follow when it makes sense. Now, I get that our lifestyles as active duty military members is not always conducive to that. Yeah. And that's, that's totally fair. That's, that's our line of work. We're not designers who had to submit a resume to a boss who understood our qualifications and knows that we're capable of being chiefs. Um, but when we see someone start to emerge when we push them, when we give them that nudge and they start to make a leadership choice, mm-hmm. it's important for us to let them grow. Yeah, And the other thing too is we have to stop assuming that all growth is good. Yeah. Good, good is a known <laughs> quantity. Yeah. Right. Good is a known quantity, right? If we experiment and we screw up, is that negative growth? Well, maybe. I mean, we could, everybody who's ever stood in front of a captain knows that you can yeah. have <laughs> steps backward. Sure. But what I mean is, if we throw out the idea of good and just let growth emerge, as long as we're staying within the guidelines as leaders of the UCMJ and good order and discipline, we're going to experience some really interesting things. And then yeah. in that instance, process is more important than outcome. Yeah. Do you think because- I've always wanted to have the conversation with somebody that like I, I've, ex- I've kind of mentally exercised through the concept of, uh, everyone's a leader, right? I, Cause I've heard it a lot and I had a captain that used to say it. And my, my initial reaction when I, when I would hear people say it was no, they're not like, <laughs> and I, I'd said, I, I reacted that way because it, 
it feels like there's you say because you, you say in the same breath that every good leader is a good follower, right? You need to learn how to be a good follower for you to be an effective leader, which I agree with in principle generally. Um, yeah, but it's like I, I guess I feel like we put almost like undue stress and unrealistic expectations like you were talking about earlier on that BMSN that I, I don't expect you to know what a BM2 knows. I don't expect you to do what a BM2 does. I expect you to screw up. I expect you to make those mistakes and have that positive growth. So in this stage that they're in as like brand new seamen that are still filling out their check-in sheet for me to say, well, you're a leader. It's like, uh, should I be saying that or should I redefine that or, or like come from a different angle and say like, <laughs> you're laying the foundation for being a leader, right? Or something like, cause I, in my mind, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm creating unrealistic expectations and putting undue stress on a kid that has so many other things to worry about as they assimilate into our organization that I don't know that that's a healthy thing to be communicating. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's a valid point. I mean, I, I struggle sometimes and I have to make it a point within my own internal dialogue mm-hmm. to remember that I just know things now by virtue of having been in this organization for as long as I have. And I sometimes forget when and how I learned those things. But like you said, that rookie checking in who's, you know, a seaman apprentice who just left school or just left boot camp doesn't know all the alphabet soup that we know and doesn't know the way to the galley for crying out. (laughs) You know, so sometimes we forget. And I think when we remember that they don't know these things. It's up to us to teach them. We then reinforce the principles of what made us a good leader by showing them the basics. Right. I think this is probably the root of the brilliant on the basics concept. Yeah. Once we remember that these sailors don't know these things, we can't have a reasonable expectation that they do know these things because, again, they just checked on board. Right. They don't know how a reactor works or why it's important to stand aft lookout. They don't understand that concept yet. It's up to us to teach them. Yeah. And do you even like, because I always, that was one of the first things I would ask myself as a chief when I would encounter some kind of like a, whatever, disciplinary issue or somebody screwed something up or whatever is like, like, did they know what right looked like? Did I, did I train them? Were they qualified to do that thing? Like, did they have any experience doing it prior to, or were they freshly qualified and, and lacked adequate supervision? Like, and, and on and on it goes as you pull that thread. Like, did well, I course, do yeah. everything I possibly could to set them up for success? And then they made a conscious decision to do something you know, <laughs> that wasn't right. Or did we end up here because a human being made a mistake because I, as a leader, didn't properly equip them or well, and, and that's that's human. the responsibility of every good leader to right. question what they did and how they could have done it better and you know we want to speak in the abstract and in large terms about leadership about accountability about ownership mm. but oftentimes the reality is I don't know why that semen apprentice got a DUI because it was one o'clock on a Saturday and I was sleeping man. yeah <laughs> Like, I I don't know what to tell you, you know, and people are going to make poor choices. I get that. Right. And there's also a realistic expectation that our leadership has to have of us. You know, did chief so-and-so train this sailor as good as possible, as well as they could have done. Right. You know, and some things are unavoidable. Like, you know, you're not supposed to drink and drive. Like, this is not, this is not new. This is not esoteric knowledge. But even then, it's like the, the 
like how did they end up here like what because what did happen like we take the time to do the pio and everything else and but then as the leader taking time to have have that human moment and really dig down and figure out what led them to that decision was it just their 19 and stupid or was it like something going on in their personal life that caused them to like that's just a symptom of a bigger problem right and like then right that speaks to how we uncover when someone's having mental health struggles right you know we recognize hey this this isn't right this is awkward this is not in keeping with their character um let's have a, let's have a harder conversation yeah let's, let's not worry about the punishment let's let's put you know, um, punishment on the side for a second. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the deeper issues here. And once we start getting past the nonsense, we start to realize that there are so many sailors struggling out there. Um, I mean, just a casual scroll through that saving sailors feed on Facebook reveals, you know, dozens and dozens of issues. And in fact, I stopped following it for a while because you get to start to, um, experience yeah, it's, what is it's tough it's known as yeah it's tough and, to read that stuff like yeah i agree with you i i gotta like check in and then check out for a little while like that's i was tough. i was talking i was talking with a friend of mine who's a, a is a chaplain and um i am now a died in the world atheist but i love having yeah. um I love spiritual chaplains. leaders as friends yeah, i love chaplains i love having those conversations and and this guy is spectacular and we were talking about recharging batteries and when it all gets to be too much and as he was going through his uh, his graduate program, he was studying uh, the Holocaust. Um, so, you know, real lighthearted material. Yeah. And <laughs> he started to develop what he referred to as empathy fatigue. Huh. In that you have people who care so much, but because their field of endeavor involves a constant beatdown of people on the worst days of their lives. Yeah you start to get emotionally exhausted from hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he said, I was, I was reading accounts of these, these survivors, not even the dead, the survivors who have to carry yeah. that weight with them. Yep. And he's like, I have to prioritize that this, this person lost three members of their family. This person lost seven members of their family. Which blow is more disastrous? <sighs> he, he goes, and w- when you have to have those conversations with yourself, that's when you are clearly in empathy fatigue, you know? Yeah. And, you need to throttle down on that. And so as good leaders, we have a responsibility. And I have found that the mess does a fantastic job, by and large, of taking that responsibility on. But I think now we are starting to reach empathy fatigue. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how do you think, what, like, organizationally, as a chief's mess, like, how do you think we're doing in that? Like, because I've, I've seen it work where as a chief's mess, a sailor gets to DRB and there's something going on and sure. it ends with a treatment plan and like leadership intervention. That's going to make sure that they're well taken care of and they get off the ship for a while and go get the help they need. And that's it. There's no disciplinary action that happens, but it, I, I would say it's probably, it's a lot more rare that that kind of thing happens. Cause there's a lot of situations and I've talked about a ton of them on this podcast about sailors that find themselves in disciplinary situations that like, yes, there's a disciplinary component to this, 
But we mm-hmm. get lost in that and forget that there's a human being on the other end of this green tablecloth that we now have to, which I don't know if that's a submarine thing or not, but yeah. uh, the, the green tablecloth there. Somebody told me that was submarine specific. Uh, but the at captain's mass where it, it's they forget there's a human being on the other end of that and they just want to beat him into the ground and and right. kick him out the door. And it's like I I I, le- I go back to the story because it's the most glaring example in my mind of a sailor that was in a special position of trust in the job that he was doing, special access to special things, and um, went home on leave, young kid, uh, barely 21, and did some pre-gaming and then went out to a strip club drinking and got blackout drunk. And there were people at the table next to him. This was his hometown friends. Um, right. So he was he was away from the military. And it was uh, they guys at the next table had cocaine and they kept offering it to him. And he's just like, no, no, no. But that's what he remembered. He's just kept saying no, but then he blacked out, comes back to the ship and pisses hot. And it's just like, and it's for cocaine. And I was his PIO and I was just like it interviewing this kid and listening to the story, like, and, and knowing him ahead of time, he was an FSA for me on the ship. Like he, this kid wouldn't step on an ant, man. Like he was that type of a human where he was just this gentle, nice kid Everybody loved him. Uh, was like, probably in honest the strip to club a fault. because his friends were there. Yeah. yeah, honest to a fault, and was just he made some poor, immature choices because that's what twenty-one-year-old men do. And then ends up Facts. in this. Ends yeah, and to me too. I so many. Oh, <laughs> and so he ends up in this situation where he blacks out and makes a stupid choice. So then we get back to this point, and I'm having conversations where. They just want to like burn this kid at the stake, rip his dolphins off his chest, kick him out of the Navy, like almost like like send him to mass, throw the book at him and then kick him while he's down. And it's just like, how is this the right answer ever? Like, I understand. (laughs) I understand the zero tolerance policy and why it exists. We understand. Yeah, I understand that the disciplinary component is there. But at the same time, I feel like intent matters a lot and Every situation is unique. And I can I can say that based on experience because I know a lot of junior sailors on the outside looking in of disciplinary uh, proceedings think they know everything like they think they know what happened. And it's like you have yeah. no idea what happened. Oh, um, yeah. And they're all wildly varying when you're in that position. I've probably done 50 PIOs and it's just like they're I, all I, yeah. so different, even though on the surface they appear the same. So, right. The charges. The, yeah. yeah. I, the circumstances. I and, yeah. yeah. I had a conversation with two junior sailors who. Uh, DRB had just wrapped up and one of the sailors who was in the DRB came out and obviously was talking to her friends about, you know, what happened inside DRB. And um, as is going to happen with a sailor who has demonstrated a stunning refusal to accept accountability, just lied to her friends. Mm -hmm. Okay. So these two junior sailors, both seamen apprentices, come up and talk to me and they tell me about what happened inside DRB. That's not what happened. I was there. <laughs> and I just started chuckling and I was like, you, you're, you're, you're actually telling me what happened yeah. inside that DRB. Well, and, and Interesting. Having, having that conversation, like, do you, like you, you know me well enough, right? That do you think if as a chief petty officer, I was in that room that I would allow that to happen that way? Like, like ask yourself that question and you don't got to answer me right now. Think about it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't. And it turns out, and it turns out not to quote Dr. House here, but people lie. Yeah. Shocking. Lie, <laughs> lying is a thing. People, people will lie to save their own skin and their own yeah. face in front of all their friends. Yeah. And, and anybody who's ever seen a schoolyard fight knows this. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I think and- that the sailors that I've led in my career, like I, I have conversations with them to this day. And I was just talking to a couple of them who both are out of the Navy now for quite a while. 
um, that were, they were my two of my best sailors on my first chiefs tour. And, um, they, I, t- I told them both I was, I had cancer and I was in treatment for it. And, uh, they're just like, they, their response was, I'm surprised that cancer wasn't too afraid of you to, to like go down this road and think that it could take you on and all this crazy stuff. Their responses were both very similar of like, Oh wow. I'm surprised. Like the, like, and then the other one was just like, Oh, you're so stubborn. And, and uh, such a pain in the, in the butt that you're going to you're going to beat this. No problem. It's just just out of sheer willpower. Yeah. And so it's like the idea that they have of me in their mind to me communicates that I did a good job of making them understand that concept. Like if I was standing in a DRB that was going the direction that is described by a lot of sailors, true or not, because I know some of them go off the rails. I know that. Happens. Of course. I would shut it down like they were laid on their fucking cable bill, man. Like I, I would lose it and it, I'd kick, I'd tell them to step out and I would start lacing all those chiefs. Like I just, yeah. it's not something that would ever be allowed to happen. Granted, I'm not always in the room, right? But like fair, there are, ver- there are versions of me all over the place. I, f- I would find it incredibly hard to believe if that was happening and you were in the room that you would uh, allow yeah. it to happen or that a lot of the other guys that I talked to would allow it to happen. And so it's like, you got to ask yourself, how common is this or is a vocal minority communicating their negative experiences, which are still bad and still need to be addressed and it's still a problem? Well, but- I think, I, I, you know, as, as we move forward through this, you know, we talk about resiliency and I know a lot of commands are introducing resiliency counselors and yeah. we're teaching resiliency. And, you know, like your young sailor who I presumptively was tossed out of the Navy for cocaine. He was, yeah. Right. Um, we offer counseling and treatment programs and things like this. And mm-hmm. when sailors are approached uh, or, or they come to us with these problems or, or, you know, they suffer some consequence at a disciplinary review board or NJP and they're still in mm-hmm. and they have to go and they have to meet with these counselors and stuff. And there's a treatment plan devised. I think that's what's one of the key components that's getting lost in all of these resiliency treatment programs. Mm-hmm is I, I understand full well that depression and anxiety are a thing. I, right. I got it. Um, but I also know that if you're not eating well and taking care of yourself physically mm-hmm. and surrounding yourself with positive influences and the corpsmen in the room who are listening to this are going to love this, drinking enough water. Um, <laughs> Changing my socks. This, right? <laughs> then, then you're really not giving yourself a fighting chance. Yeah, for sure. I, I can and, tell you, I've noticed that in my own life right? where and, like in the times that I didn't balance, it was, I, all I did was work and burn the candle at both ends and I got fat and I got unhealthy yep. and I wasn't sleeping well and it affected sure. everything. Cause fast food is in fact fast. Yep. yep. Um, there is one missing component that we need to teach more of. Um, and I am not speaking on behalf of the Navy. I am speaking of my own personal opinion and, and experience here. Sharpen your knife. That's resiliency training. What do you in mean all by? of this, we have oftentimes forgotten that we are the armed forces, not the unarmed forces. Mm-hmm. We train for a very specific mission. We train to do things that are terrible. Yeah. That's a reality. The existence of a nuclear-powered submarine tells yeah. us that we are more than willing to do something horrible. Yeah. Right? Uh, we have a ship that's physically called a destroyer. Yep. <laughs> right? We train to do the worst thing that humanity has ever done to itself. Mm-hmm. And sometimes as we are preparing these sailors and making more resilient sailors, 
sometimes we forget to tell them that it's important to sharpen your knife, train to do your job. Mm. It's important to know when a sailor is too emotionally or physically crippled to do that job. And I'm not suggesting that that's never the case because clearly it is. Yeah. But sharpen your knife. Well, I think, uh, and I, I guess it's more of a question. Do you think that a component of sharpening your knife? Cause like, I think it, and this is me coming from the submarine force. I think we, all we do is sharpen our knife. Like I, we spend an obscene amount of time training and certifying and qualifying right. and, and, and doing reps and drilling and, and making sure that we're ready to do the things that we need to do. Of course. Um, I, I think that what gets lost in that is a component of sharpening your knife is everything you just described, like the taking care of yourself physically, mentally, yes. making sure your wellness is in check and, and mental health checks are a real thing and everything else. And it's, it's starting to become part of a cultural shift in the submarine force, like a, the, especially the mental health component, albeit I, th- I think a reaction to unplanned losses more than anything is that that was uh, it took us getting to that point which surprised a lot of people i talked to an nsw tech that was like he couldn't believe the attrition rate and i'm like yeah no like we lose a ton of people all the time and it's almost always to either mental health specific issues or like symptoms of like like they have an alcohol problem and but it's really right. a mental health issue or they have some other financial problem or personal life problems that are all just related to a, a, an underlying mental health issue. And instead of proactively addressing the reasons why they arrive at that point, we're reacting to it with, which it's, it's good. Like the embedded mental health functions are amazing. And we're there, sure. there are definitely functions built in for us to be proactive and we are, and it's becoming part of the culture. But um, I, yeah, I don't think that we, we view that as part of it. And even when you're standing at all hands call and they're like, yeah, make sure you take care of yourself. Make sure you get some time off. You get some good sleep. You spend time with your family. You work on your physical family. You do all these things, even though we're working 15 hour days. It's like, when right. am I supposed to do that? And it's not an unrealistic question coming from the E6 and below. It's like, no, it, re- I, it really yeah. isn't. And it's, it's not, um, it does not merit being, you know, cast aside. It's a, it's a very valid question. I mean, Let's be realistic. Sleep deprivation is sometimes built into the training cycle. Right. But sharpen your knife in my mind, that philosophy to me means that sometimes you have to isolate yourself to recharge your batteries if you're of that persuasion. And I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, you have to engage in positive behavior. That, um, And that's, that's a very clinical way of saying it. But man, you got to have some fun that doesn't involve yeah. getting destructive. Yeah. You know? And if fun is playing catch with your kids or, or going for a bike ride, I have found that, and this isn't a surprise to anybody, self-esteem is not a birthright. Yeah. It's a thing that you build slowly over time. And if you have the right guidance and the right leaders, you, you, you do one thing well, and that gets reinforced. And you do a few more things well, and there will be mistakes in the process. I've mentioned that. But- mm. As we slowly start to build self-esteem, we start to realize that it comes from actually accomplishing a goal or doing a thing. Right. You know, even if you don't do it well, but you you complete it, you know, with some hiccups, well, it's done. You did the thing and you've just proven to yourself that you're capable of doing that thing. Yeah. And this is more less of an institutional concern of mine than it is a societal one, because, of course, our sailors are a cross section of that same society. Right. What we experience is a large portion of our junior sailors who come in who don't have 
what I would consider basic self-esteem. And so that as a chief, I have to spend the first six months of my time with this sailor teaching them human human skills. Yeah, for sure. I I describe Before it as I like teaching a, them how to be a sailor. Yeah, I describe it as like a finishing school for for adults because you get these eighteen <laughs> you get these eighteen nineteen year old kids and it's like they don't know what a check is. They don't know how credit works. They don't know that they shouldn't have a twenty nine percent interest rate on their used car. Like. <laughs> And and we've all right. heard those horror stories, but it's like that. Yeah, they don't know how to function as adults because they've never been asked to. They came straight out of high school in mom and dad's house and came to me in the Navy post boot camp in a school. So it's or like sometimes what, not even mom and dad's house. Sometimes just mom's right. House, just yeah. dad's house. Yeah, you and know? a lot of times it was a. I had a, there was a kid on uh, one of my submarines that was homeless before he joined the Navy. So that's a whole different context where it's just like what a. What was your life like before you got here, you know, man? And he was just happy to be getting three hots and a cot. And it was just I'll like. I'll tell you what, though. That kid knows how to survive. Yeah. And he worked harder <laughs> than most people because he was he understood how how like lucky he was to be in the situation that he was. But there's other kids that come from really great situations that look at it as like, oh, this is the hardest thing in the world that I got to get up early and put and it's like that's just where they came from. And you just got to teach them that skill and build that work ethic into them and, and finish them off for their parents. And that's why like, I get grief sometimes about calling my sailors kids on the podcast. And I like on Reddit, they would give me a little bit of grief about it. And it was nothing terrible, but it was just like, right. Like I thought about it and I was like, maybe I shouldn't do that. But then I was like, no, no, I'm going to keep doing that because, and it's not derogatory at all. I'm not like, I'm not, it's not a swipe at anybody's maturity level. It's how I view them like with an, an emotional attachment because that's what I spend my time doing. So you get that invested in them. It's like, these are my kids, man. Like two of them are going to come to my wedding. Like, like yeah, these are right. my, these are my kids. And I, I keep in contact yeah. with them and I, I kind of view them through that lens as like, it's, it's a finishing school for adults. Like I'm basically their like pseudo parent for until they are, get to that, that point where they're, they're self-sufficient. That's a, that's a very real thing. And when, yeah. when I left therapy, um, boy, the first two weeks I had to have a serious wake up call because the first two weeks out because, yeah. man, I'm back in the real world. I got to wear my uniform every day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I got to I got to go back to functioning. I got to go back to you know, vacuuming my floor and taking out the garbage and being a human <laughs> being again. And, yeah. you know, that's when. We have all the study and we have all the theoretical stuff that we talk about and the therapy breakthroughs, but then you you have to build those resiliency skills. You have to build self-esteem. You have to sharpen your knife. And for me, at least, when I'm frustrated at work, I cannot do something physical that I can't just go running or just lift weights, which is mm -hmm. a common you know treatment for for stress. Yeah, um, I, I I require something that needs me to remove my mind from that situation and focus entirely on the moment that I'm in. It's a very, I don't know, Zen sort of way of looking at it. But um, I got into refurbishing furniture. Hmm. And one of the, the reasons I did this, the, the metaphor of taking a banged up piece of furniture and still finding new uses for it is, I mean, pretty inherent for somebody who, who was suicidal. But it's also very difficult to focus on the stupid thing my boss said while there's a saw blade rotating at 1500 RPM yeah. next to the phone. <laughs> yeah. You know, I need to be in that moment. And yeah. um, I'm not a Buddhist by any stretch, but there is something to the idea of Zen and being in the here and now. Yeah. There's, I, on my second submarine, first chief's tour, 
if they came in the galley and I was baking, it was just, that's what I was dealing with stress. And I was just like, just leave me alone. Just don't talk to me. And I'm like, if you come in the galley and you see me making like pas de jus, just walk away. Like, just let it go. <laughs> and like, I'll come back later. Um, unless something's on don't fire. Don't ask where the cookies came from, man. Just eat <laughs> yeah, the cookies and yeah. be quiet. And then I, and then three, four hours later, I'm walking around the submarine handing out treats and I'm in, I'm in a great mood because I get to do that. Everybody's happy. I, it's like, I got to go through that, the Zen, like, coping mechanism so i'm in a way better mood and then i get to walk around the submarine and make people happy with treats so it's like yeah that was like <laughs> if they can they would they knew if they came if my music was playing and i was baking in the galley it was just like don't even don't even look at him just let him be in that moment until he's done and then ask the question unless something's and on fire as much as i love the chief's mess and and hanging out after hours invariably i start to like it less and less as the conversations go on and more beer gets drank because we always end up talking about work. Yeah. Yep. And you rarely ever talk about the things that make you happy when you talk about work. Yep. You it's like complaining and commiserating. Always, exactly. <laughs> and like which like, can be healthy sometimes, but like I find sure. that those conversations happen in the mess while I'm at work a lot of the times and or at a meeting or something and then I don't I don't need to do that while I'm not at work, you know, like I don't right. when, when the uniform is off. Yeah. Um, I, I love my friends and that's how I view the mess. They are my friends and I get grumpy when I don't see them enough. And man, you're awesome. And you, you have your own woodworking business on the side and you just caught a massive Marlin on vacation. I want to uh, hear more about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to hear about, you know, your awesome new dog. Like these are the things that I care about. I don't, yeah. We all have to put the uniform back on on Monday and go back to work. Yep. Right? That's not lost <laughs> on me. I know what's what's there, but I want those human interactions, those things that make us who we are. Yep. And again, because I hate small talk, I want to get down to like the meat of it. Like I want to, I want to know what really moves you. Yeah, I want to know, you know, what your favorite song is and why, and why you you met the love of your life, and and you know why you're getting married now, and and those are the things that are interesting to me. Right. And I have, I have no time for the ordinary or the commonplace anymore because I, I view it as poison. It's just, yeah. gonna, I don't want to get dragged down in that mire. And I have, I have no intention on, on doing that. Yeah. And that's, that's why I like I, a lot of times I, I don't have a tie, like my, my circle's small, but then the yeah. work, the work friends, which same, same thing, like these guys are friends of mine, but uh, it's, it's like a, they would want to, and especially my, my last cob, he would always want to like, Hey, come over and watch football or come like, hey, we'll barbecue at the house or whatever. And it's like, sometimes I would go, but most of the time I wouldn't because it's like, look, man, I got to deploy with you. I got to spend at least eight hours a day with you five days a week if I don't have duty and everything else. And then if we're at sea, I got to spend 16 hours a day with you or more seven days a week. So it's like, I love you guys, but I want to spend time with my family and I want to spend time not talking about or thinking about work and it because I think it's healthy. And it's like I just I get to a place where if I got to do that too much, it's like like you said, it's like poisonous, man. Like I just don't I mentally can't handle it. I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to be in that space all the time. It's like I can't No, I, <laughs> they, I have, they would get frustrated so, with me. Yeah. And no, I totally understand that. Yeah. I commiserate with with dealing with their frustration. But when, when those moments happen and I start, I find myself looking around like, oh, what the hell are you doing here right now? Yeah. Um, Henry Rollins, who is yeah. a role model of mine, um, and he, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast and he was stone cold brilliant. Yeah. One of the best things I ever read was, you know, there's no such thing as spare time. 
There's no such thing as free time. There's no such thing as downtime. All I've got is lifetime. Yeah. Go. Yep. <laughs> Put, uh, stomp on the gas. Like I, I just go, man. Just do this thing because that's all we've got. We've got lifetime. Yeah. And I'm not saying I want to go and accomplish everything in the world, but there's definitely things that I want to do. And so that means with regards to my treatment and my therapy, I, I can either get bitter or I can get better. Yeah. I mean, I can take what's been dealt to me, which was a pretty terrible hand. It wasn't the worst hand, but it was a terrible hand. Yeah. And I can use it to allow myself to become a better person or I can let it tear me down. You know, And that choice is only mine. It belongs to literally nobody else. Right. And I have no interest in not achieving. I mean, doing the things that I want to do takes time from other people and my interactions with those other people. But when I sit down for five hours and I do my podcast, like I'm sure you're going to do yours. Yeah. You know, you're, you're going to be in your zone and doing your thing. And is it just me or, or is that when everybody decides to reach out to you and have a conversation? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. Like, I, I am working, man. I am yeah. trying to do this thing. I don't need this right now. You know, and yeah. I, tenacity is underrated. Mm-hmm. And I value that. I value authenticity and tenacity more than I value originality. Um, I mean, at this juncture, there's not a whole lot that's original. Authentic, yeah. however, is a yeah. very different, very different color. Yeah. Um, and being tenacious, I, I, I was a lousy, a lousy second class, but <laughs> I just got better at it, you know? Yeah. And when I, when I made first class, I was a lousy first class and I just kept pushing and I was a first yeah. class for a long time. Um, but you know, I showed up in the mess with more than the experiences of other people who made it in seven, eight, nine years. Mm-hmm. And that's not to diminish their achievement because that's a hell of an achievement. Right. Um, but I had more experience in my bag from a human being standpoint. And when you look around a boat or a ship or a command and you say, roughly one third of these people have considered killing themselves in the last five years. Yeah. That's a sobering reality. That's yeah, that's wild. And especially in the, like, it's, it's weird enough to me. Like it, it, it is a mental like hand grenade to me to think about, how many just people consider it in like that in in that way like that reality that they've considered hurting or killing themselves then like in the like everything is amplified in our career field right because like just the pressure and the stress of what we do for a living so then it's like so if you look at just the the broad population and you're like like the statistics and stuff like and then you're like then you look at the weird little sub category of the the armed forces you're just like wow like and it's it that's another reason why it's like i i it kind of blows my mind and and like we're trending in the right direction but it that like you were saying like those mental health checks aren't already a built-in like part of our like phas or whatever like the normal (laughs) checkups right where you like you just got to sit down and talk to somebody and like maybe unpack a few things and that's totally normal and it's not a big deal. And it's like, um, and and I, I'm sure part of its capacity, right? Like just like, there's not enough mental health experts and professionals out there to like handle that, handle that load yet. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's part of it, but it's like, I, 
there's got to be something where it's like they could. And, and I mean, I fill out a little sheet of paper that's like, have I been sad for a long time for over the last <laughs> like 90 days or whatever? Um, so, right. I mean, yes, I guess I'm familiar that's with these papers. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like no one is going to answer those, honestly. So, uh, no. well, yeah, for me, at least. And if I could have if I could have a one on one with a sailor who was going through these things mm-hmm. and I was asked to share my experiences, what I would tell them was that I had to stop marrying my illness. Because every time I would give in to those negative feelings or that awful self-talk or fall into another pattern, I just remarried and and signed my lease to re-up to that pain for another six months or another year. Mm -hmm. And if I don't address it, then I'm just going to get hitched again to the same old thing <laughs> that's been killing me. Yeah. And I'm going to be one of those guys who's working a bar stool when he's 55, wondering where it all went wrong. Yeah. And I have no interest in that either. So right. we fall in love with our pain sometimes, not to sound like an emo band from the 90s or a Smashing Pumpkins song, but yeah, we do. We fall in love with our sadness. We fall in love with our pain yeah. because we think it's a defining characteristic when really it's a, a reaction to other things. Yeah. And if we start hacking at the root of the problem rather than the limb, we're going to achieve greater possibility. We're going to take the restrictor cap off of that engine and we're going to go. Yeah. And so stop marrying your illness, man. Stop re-upping your lease with pain. It's no good. Yeah. What are uh, One of the things that I constantly see as like a barrier to somebody seeking out treatment is like a fear of... It's like a bunch of things, really, like a fear of repercussions on their career, a fear of losing a clearance, a fear of one of the biggest ones, I think, and because I've talked to a couple of my old students who have dealt with like sexual assault issues that um, one of the one of the things that hurt them even more after they reported was being removed from the ability to contribute. Right. Like they got they got like put in some broom closet to pass out basketballs while the investigation happened or whatever. So like being removed from their ability to do their job. What are like in your experience, because one of the things that I that I love about your story is that you are an active duty chief out there doing it right now post treatment. Yes. And so yep. like, I, yeah, I wanted to you to share some of that, like your experience with it. And then kind of like if, if there if you can, I mean, I because I don't know, having not experienced it in anywhere near a similar way, like if those fears are like f- grounded in some kind of reality or if in your experience that you came out the other end with like the ability to just step right back in and contribute. Cause I know like there's a, there's a gradient there where there's like a spectrum of, of how involved the treatment is. And like, there are points at which, which your situation was one of them where you had to be removed. Right. But the, is it, I don't know. What are the positives and negatives and, and how did you come out the other end and, and get right back into the fight? Okay. Well, there, there's, there's a lot. There there. is. I'm sorry, man. My questions are always like that. No, no, it's, 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 it's it's a hell of a question. It's an important one. Um, okay. To begin, I am not one to qualify my statements, but I will say this, the MC community, Mm -hmm. uh, and the defense information school at which they train, um, are the liberal arts students and the liberal arts college of the department of defense. Okay. And as such, the leaders at those schoolhouses and in that community, typically have a higher level of empathy than other communities, certainly more than you would find in the Boston's mate community. Okay. They're a little more, not a little, a lot more inclined to listen to somebody asking for mental health treatment than perhaps other communities. 
So with that in mind, I was afraid for narcissistic, egotistical reasons and not for career repercussions. Or perhaps I was, but the narcissism and the ego got so in the way that they overshadowed anything else. And then it got to the point where I just could not function, um, where it wasn't, oh, I can patch this up when I get home. I just got to put the uniform on and go back to work for one more day. That wasn't real anymore. Um, Before the intervention, actually, the plan was on during that intervention, I was going to say whatever I needed to say to get out of that room. And then I was going to go jump off the Duke Ellington Bridge in D.C., um, so we were miles past the below a security clearance. Yeah. No, I was, I was tapping out. Yeah. Um, so with regards to blowing a security clearance, sometimes that's a realistic possibility. Yeah. Um, but there are other avenues. Um, there are perhaps better career fields to be in for your mental health. Right. I did not make chief as an MC. Right. I lost my security clearance and was removed from the rate and made chief in an entirely different rate. Yeah. Um, that's, I think that's an important thing to point out that that possibility even exists. Like that's a, exactly. that's a real thing. Like you went to a, a – because people would think of that, that their career ended the day that they cross-rated out of just one rating at 16 years as a first class, which <laughs> turns out to be false. Like you can succeed 100%. anywhere. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, my transfer eval from that command said, regardless of rate, this sailor can lead in, in any career field. Yeah, that's awesome. And that may have been one of the largest contributing factors factors to me making chief. Um, so, yes, there are other options. You may blow a security clearance. That's a real thing. Okay, that is a distinct possibility. If you're if you've been drinking for so long that you forgot to pay your bills and it's time to re up your security clearance and you just don't have it anymore because your credit score is shot, yeah, you might you're probably not going to be a CT much longer. Right. Does that mean your life is over? Well, of no. course not. Does Does that right. mean your career in the Navy is over? Absolutely not. Yeah. Um. You might find better fits for you, but you've been mired in your your. You've been stuck in your bullshit for so long that you can't see other endeavors. Yeah. <laughs> and so once you get past that um, and the the reality of needing treatment, not even want treatment anymore, but actually physically needing treatment becomes the, the greatest pressing priority. Everything else just gets thrown to the, to the back burner. And then you start to realize what actually is important. Yeah. And so the reaction I got when I came back um, was so overwhelmingly positive, it cannot possibly be the norm. When you came I, back from treatment to the, to the to MU the command, community. Okay. Yep. Or not the MU, but the uh, MC community um, or MC. Yeah. Sorry. I got back from treatment. And in fact, I was allowed visitors while I was at seven West in Bethesda. Okay. And Almost everybody I worked with or for came to see me. That's awesome. And That's, including, yeah. including senior officers that I didn't even interact with all that much, but they stopped in just to check on me. That's yeah, that's a huge deal. Like I, I can't imagine in your mind that you wouldn't walk like run through a brick wall for those people after that experience. Like I the 
I, I had students in the hospital. I had an instructor that was on bed rest with a complications from a pregnancy and they were all the way down in the tidewater. It was like two and a half hours away. And I was driving down there, like just go, we're going to visit and trying to drag people with me. And it was, I got a lot of like pushback from certain people, but it was like, yeah, I mean, I, it like, it was a huge deal to her and to the students that I, we were coming down there to check in on them. And the parents, like one student had a seizure and almost died. Um, and it was just like showing up at the hospital in my uniform, talking to the parents. Like it was a big deal to them to see that we were there, just that we were there. The kid wasn't even conscious, but we just were checking in and it was like that. It goes a long way. Oh, and I mean, give a damn is a thing. Yeah. I mean, we call it gas and you know what the S stands for, but we'll just say give a damn for the sake of your your explicit rating on iTunes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you got to give a damn. Yeah. And if you're in a position of leadership, I don't, it's not an option. Yeah. If, if you're wearing khakis, you have to, it's yeah. a requirement. That human capital is our resource because a hundred years from now, those ships that we take pretty photographs of and all the aircraft that we love to see and we talk about the sound of freedom, none of that's going to be real. Yeah. It, they're all going to be razor blades and coffee cans. The reality is there's going to be a human being in the uniform. Whatever that uniform looks like a hundred years from now, there's going to be a human being occupying it. Yeah. And if we don't invest in the six inches between their ears and for that matter, our own ears, mm -hmm. those are the most important six inches on the battlefield, at least according to General Mattis. And he might know a thing or two about <laughs> battlefields. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, I We're think- We're doing ourselves a great disservice if we don't in make that investment. Yeah, and, and I think the authenticity- the people that came to see me did. Yeah, the authenticity you talked about earlier too matters in that space. Like I, it only works if that- give a damn is all is authentic. You know what I mean? Like where right there, you know, there's people that are like going to show up and show face because they they're checking a box because uh, they think it's what they're supposed to do. Like same fake it as you fake it till you make it concept. We were talking about earlier, right. but like if it's not authentic, that sailor's going to know the family's going to know like it's, it's pretty surprising in a way to me that like how easily other people are able to just see right through things when they're inauthentic. Like it's not the junior sailors, especially like, good God, they're like a lie detector. <laughs> like they oh, know they can, they can immediately, they, they, they spot that nonsense yeah. from a mile away. And so it's, you don't get the mileage out of it. You don't get the buy-in out of it and you don't get the, like just that positive reaction to somebody giving a crap. It's like, you're not going to get any of those things out of doing it. If it's inauthentic. I mean, uh, the beginning of uh, The Breakfast Club, the quote from David Bowie, mm. you know, from the song uh, Changes, you know, and these mm. children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Yeah. They, they yeah. know the score. They know when you're, when you're giving them a line. They know when you're not being real with them. Yeah. You know, like, like any – like – going through season and, and, you know, you're trying to, to give a line to the master chief and he's just, Oh my God. You're like, Oh man, I was so <laughs> full of it. It was ridiculous. And yeah. Yeah. Junior sailors and they, they have a world-class BS detector mm -hmm. and you, you got to kick them the real deal because if you don't, then you're just another fake. Yep. And yep. let's be realistic. You know, we have sailors who the, the first thing they saw and were conscious of was New York city on fire. And then it got worse. <laughs> yeah. Like they don't have time for, you know, you know, authenticity. You have to yeah. be genuine with these sailors. Yeah. Go figure. Genuine. Right. Right. Shocking. <laughs> mm. Apt description. 
Um, what I, another, and we mentioned it earlier, uh, before we started recording, but the, I'm curious how your, and you've already discussed some of it, but mm-hmm. how your leadership perspective changed from you being in the position that you were in as an instructor in a leadership position over those students to going through treatment and coming out at the other end and then making chief, like how did you, how did your perspective on leadership change through that experience? Once I shoved my own ego and narcissism into a corner, I started to realize that it wasn't about me anymore. Yeah. Now, like I said, the military by and large is a meritocracy and I loved it. (laughs) I loved the attention. I loved the pats on the back. I loved being told by people I admired that I was doing a great job. It's an awesome feeling. Of course it is. Uh, but that's all I was craving. Yeah. And then I started to realize that there was something more. And this didn't happen until another year out of treatment was, oh my God, I've been doing this all for the wrong reason. I wanted to make chief because I thought that's what you're just supposed to do. Like that's that's the, the ultimate sign of admiration from the people who you respect is that they make you a chief. Well, that's not real at all. Yeah. The the how well you lead your sailors is what matters here. And that's a sacred, sacred responsibility. And they're not just going to give that to somebody who's interested in themselves. Yeah. That's not how that works. So the more you start working for other people, the greater the gifts you get back in return. Yeah. But it's not about the return on investment. It's not that at all. The people who given the nature of, uh, of the current times that we're in and the nature of this quarantine, we have now the utmost respect for the nurse doing a double shift. Yeah. And we have the utmost respect for the kid delivering the pizza. Yeah. Right. I mean, before these were, we have a, a great deal more respect for the, the so-called minimum skill or minimum wage worker than we ever used to have. Yeah. And, Oh my God, it's almost like we're getting a heavy dose of empathy now. Yeah. Somebody else is out there doing it for a larger reason. And I think the professions that we are most proud of as a humanity, as a collective body, are the ones where you give more of yourself and expect less. Yeah. And I I can't even remember who said this one, but I I wish I could give myself credit for it. That's my ego talking. uh, might have been Proust. I'm not sure. Um, we're not saying think less of yourself. We're just saying think of yourself less. Less. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I like it. It's I mean, yeah, it's so clean and it's beautiful yeah. and it's worded very very well. Yeah, but it's so reflexively poignant because yeah, get, just give more of yourself and think of yourself less. Do it because you want to do it because it's a healthy thing. Yeah, but then the the flip side of it is too is like there's a point at which it becomes too much, you know, like you were talking about it or like that, almost like the empathy fatigue where it's like, mm. um, it, me being the guy that I am and emptying the tank hundred percent of the time, it's like eventually the, the fatigue sets in of that tank being empty. And it's like the way in which it gets filled back up for me is like, sometimes, yeah, I take a step back and just get the downtime or get the, whatever function is going to kind of gas me back up. But then, 
the thing that I get out of this, the the satisfaction and the reward for me is when sailors or veterans or whoever reach back, right? Like, um, and same thing, like people are going to reach out to you when this podcast goes up and just be like, Oh my God, thank you so much. And blah, blah. Like, that's exactly what I needed to hear, et cetera. And it's just going to, and I don't know I'm assuming you have a similar reaction to me, but I don't know what that does for you. But what it does for me is like, that's the whole reason why I continue to do it. And it gasses me back up so that I can continue doing it by like, I, cause I need, I need something <laughs> like I need that motivation to continue doing it. And that's what I get is. And it's sure. And, and I, I think when we, when we again, empty the tank and we start yeah. to experience emotional and uh, uh, empathy fatigue, um, once again, using the brain power of the people around us and, we have a great benefit in that we have the chief's mess. Um, those people who surround you or that you choose to surround yourself with, there is a key difference, can also, should also be able to recognize that and be like, hey, you're kind of in a funk lately. You want to you know, go for a jog? You want to yeah. maybe go catch a movie? Go grab a bite to eat? Now, granted, obviously, those aren't very realistic options right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But there are options and there are always options. And sometimes it just requires some creative thinking. But by leveraging the brain power of the people around us, we can start to get different perspectives. Yeah. And that helps us again to refill the cup so that we can empty it for somebody else. Yep. I'll tell you what, and man. There's, this, no, there's no shame in that. Yeah. This technology is is incredible. Like I've done uh, Zoom uh, interviews with a couple of guys like uh, Jeff Bayless sure. has a podcast. I did his and we did it over Zoom and then like Zencaster and like all these other Skype, all these other platforms to be able to interact with other humans without leaving the house. Like I think there's a whole new appreciation and awareness of like what you can accomplish from home. Uh, for me anyway. For yeah. It's, well, it's, I, I didn't even know Zencaster was a thing until I saw the link and I was like, oh, well, this is this is a new tool that I've got. Yeah. So that yep. and you know, if I want to do if I want to do an episode of my podcast with my dad, who's got yep. a brilliant musical brain, I can be like, "Hey, Dad, you're there. I'm here. Yep. Let's talk about deep pump <laughs> cuts from the 1970s." Yeah, you know? it's it's amazing, and it does it does a ton of things for me too to make it so much easier for me to to be able to do this and and to put out quality audio too. Like it's yeah, it, it's amazing oh, the type essential. of yep the type of things that are available because like I. I invested in all this fun gear. Like I'm, uh, there's probably a mixer inbound soon, but, um, nice. <laughs> yeah, chief Bob's teaching me audio stuff, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, he's kind of like an audio file as far as like the recording aspect of it. But it's, uh, it, I did all that. And then I started doing all these interviews and I'm talking to a guy on a set of AirPods across the connection, or I'm talking to a guy, uh, or a girl on a set, like a gaming headset that they got plugged into their computer and so it's yeah. like, it's not, I'm not going to get the quality audio. I put all this money into, uh, into my setup and it's like, my audio sounds good. But now with Zencaster, it records the audio on your end. So I get what you hear in your headphones, not what I hear across the connection. So it uploads the audio on your end and sounds way better. It's just, yeah, really, technology. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I want to continue answering your question about the, the social dynamic, I guess, of me in therapy, coming back, the repercussions on my yeah, career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously, the, uh, some of those repercussions were that I had been drinking and wallowing in self-pity for so long that I didn't pay bills. And that has a negative effect on your credit score. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it turns out you have to have a secret clearance to be an MC, and I didn't qualify anymore. Right. So because I was still of some value to the Navy, 
um, my chain of command reached out to several community managers, uh, several detailers, and worked out a deal where I was going to go into the BM1 rating, which was at the time manned at over 104%. Wow. And uh, go back to the fleet. Now, at this point, man, I'm, I'm just a ball player trying to finish the season. Yeah. That's it. Uh, I, I, the idea of making chief to me was so far on the back burner. I just wanted to continue being good at what I was doing, getting better, and leading sailors. Yeah. And it turns out that's what I should have been doing all along. All along. <laughs> I was going to say, you just described what they look for on the board, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's what I should have been doing in the first place. And so um, Conrad Mathis, who's now a master chief, mm-hmm. said to me the night before, um, or two nights before we were supposed to get the results, we were on deployment. He said, you know, if you make it, you're going to, you're going to piss off a lot of BM1s. <laughs> and I was like, why is that? And he goes, because you got some guys who have been trying for a long time to make BMC and you've been a BM1 for about three years. Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah. And he goes, just keep that in mind. And I was like, well, I will. Yeah. And I'll have some empathy for them, but um, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a, uh- a buddy of mine, he just talks about never apologize for getting promoted because we have conversations about like it. It's probably I'm probably not going to make Master Chief before I retire, but um, but th- there's a bunch of people that think I will, and we have conversations about it. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't think that's true. But uh, they're just like we talk like if it happens, I'm like, there's a there's a couple of guys in my rating that I think should be ahead of me, and there's really good reasons for it. Um, so if I did, I'm like, man, I'd feel kind of dirty. And my buddy is just like, don't ever apologize for getting promoted, man. And I'm like, well, I won't, but I'm just saying, <laughs> it's not like I'm going to say and, and, no. Right. I'm not now. I, you know what? I've been working real hard for these anchors. I, you know, yeah. I'm going to respectfully decline. That's not a real thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, by, by putting my own nonsense aside and focusing on that and being, honest and real with people and sometimes being uncomfortably honest yeah. um, with myself, but also not beating myself up for these mistakes. And that is still something I, tr- I, I struggle with because, you know, it's really hard to rewire your adolescence. Yeah. And it's very hard to always be positive. That's in fact, that's not even realistic. Yeah. You can't always yeah. be positive with yourself. You're going to beat yourself up over things, but I require a change of perspective and a reframing of the conversation within my mind. And when I reframe the conversation in my mind, it helps me over the hump. And if junior sailors are listening to this, I want you to understand, let's reframe this conversation, right? Um, Bipolar disorder doesn't have you. Depression doesn't have you. Anxiety doesn't have you. These are things that you have. It's not the entirety of your being. That's not real. This is a thing that you have, like you've got cancer, like I've got depression. These are things that we've got. But this doesn't define us. We have a pair of khakis in the closet. This doesn't define us as human beings, right? Right. And so when we slowly start to reframe that conversation, we start to tilt the axis a little bit. And sometimes that's enough leverage to get us over the top. Yeah whatever the top looks like for you. And so let's reframe these conversations that we have 
Um, let's reframe our own mindsets, not in the sense of being more positive, but in the sense of maybe you just need a different way of looking at things. Yeah. That's like, how, like, I guess I would say how, like, how does one reframe that? Because I, I imagine, and it's, it's me imagining it, it from the mental health, like point of view is when you're in the grips of something like that, it's how do you reframe that mentally? Like, how do you get that new worldview? Cause well, the first, the first step is recognizing that you're even having those negative thoughts. Right. Right. And sometimes, and this is part of my problem was part of my problem. And that's ultimately one of the things that I worked on while I was in therapy was Mm -hmm. that, um, negative begins to become your default setting. Yeah. You know, the idea of suicide to a well-adjusted person is so radical yeah. that we have entire hospitals dedicated to preventing people from doing it. Mm-hmm. Now, in my mind, that wasn't a reality. In my mind, suicide was always a setting that was available. Yeah. It wasn't a thing that was forbidden. It wasn't a thing that you didn't talk about. It was a, a realistic expectation that if something just got too horrible, I would punch my own ticket. Hmm. And now the very thought is horrifying to me. It's, it's, it's paralyzing sometimes when I start to feel depression slip in yeah. and I start to have these negative thoughts. I know where I'm going, but I don't let it panic me, first of all. I just say, okay. You're having these conversations with yourself right now. What can we do about this? In fact, I had this very conversation with myself last night. The night before I was supposed to go onto a podcast and talk about these sorts of things, I had to reframe a conversation in my head because of the quarantine, haven't been able to do a physical fitness thing, haven't had a lot of social interaction for obvious reasons getting bored, pissed off, and frustrated with myself. And I know that when I get bored, pissed off, and frustrated with myself, I start to get self-destructive. Yeah. that's And I was feeling bummed out. That's interesting. So I I, I had to say to myself, okay, you know you're bored. You know you're frustrated. You know that you're frustrated with yourself. Why? Can you control this? No. Yeah. Here's what you can do to get back in the fight, though. And- so I found a couple of stress relievers. I uh, before we started doing this podcast, I started working on my own. Nice. And uh, you know, I got reinvested in the things that bring me joy. Yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah, I I was thinking about that yesterday. I had a conversation with my wife about like she being cooped up in the house is a lot harder on her than it is me. Like I'm more of a homebody, and uh, yeah. having her here is enough for me to like feel like I'm getting some social interaction. You know what I mean? Like, sure. And then I do, you know, the podcast and stuff. I talk to people either about stuff we're doing, uh, like Chief Bob's helped me out a lot with the podcast itself as I'm going through treatment and stuff. And then, so we talk about it a lot and then I get on here and do these interviews. So it's like, that's enough for me. She gets kind of frustrated. And like, I was thinking about it yesterday about like, I'm, I'm physically limited cause I just had brain surgery. So it's like, I, I, can, <laughs> I can't like go, uh, do fitness the way that I want to now, because one of the byproducts of the surgery was I breathe a lot better so I can sleep a lot better. So I have better energy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That was the whole point of me going to the doctor and the, which is how they found the tumor was like, I thought I just had a badly deviated septum, uh, 
turns out I had a tumor. Um, but they, <laughs> they, when I they, don't mean to laugh. No, I, yeah. When they took it out, it fixed the problem that I had. So now I'm sleeping better. Um, and, which is good because you're going right, to need it. <laughs> right. And then the energy levels have gone up. So I want to, I have a garage gym that's like as equipped as equipped gets, man. I did CrossFit for like four years and that's what it, that's what's in there. Um, oh, dope. And yeah, so I can go out there and just abuse myself in so many ways, but I can't because they don't want me lifting more than 10 pounds. And it's, so I'm just like, uh, I'm in this weird place where I go out there and do some weird little, like I'm trying to, I have a weird thing going off my shoulder. So my, my wife's got me doing these like shoulder exercises. And then I like, I got an assault bike that I'll just sit on and pedal real slow just so I feel like I'm doing something. And it feels good to be like in the fight, even if I'm not like fighting really hard. You know what I mean? Like it feels like I'm doing something. So it's like, it's, it helps. And then that was something that I like, I was thinking about yesterday as we had that conversation. Um, me and my wife, it was like, it, that's, I, I think just doing something like we were talking about the podcast thing, like or whatever project somebody wants to pursue, just do, just start, just do something. Yeah. Absolutely. And so like for me, like it, I feel like I'm doing it even though I'm not doing it the way that I'd like to be doing it, I'm still doing it. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's, it's something and it helps. I, I, I found that the, the things that I'm particularly gifted at yeah. are not immediately marketable skills. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> I had to find, uh, avenues for myself that were not necessarily marketable, but also allowed me to get into the fight. Yeah. You know, and, and to, to make a contribution to, to the you know humanity at large, I guess, in some very, very small way to get back in the fight and do a thing. Um, but because I know that my skills aren't inherently marketable, I knew that I was going to fall on my face a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't care anymore. Yeah. Ditto. That's, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to suck. There, I mean, yeah. I, I've been on a golf course exactly twice in my life and mm-hmm. there's no way I'm making the PGA tour, but do I want to go back? Yeah. Cause number one, it's great to be out, you know, in the dirt and the grass with my friends. I spend more time in the dirt than in the grass on a golf course. <laughs> um, but I'm out there with my friends and I'm interacting and we're talking about cool stuff and, and I'm there and does it matter if I'm good at it? No, I'm not no. on the PGA tour. Yeah. It doesn't matter. <laughs> You know, yeah. but am I, am I going to fall down? Yeah, of course I'm going to fall down, but I like learning. Yeah. I, I love it. I'm the same way, man. I, as soon as I'm physically able, I want to start jujitsu and it's like, I'm going to get annihilated a lot, but oh, it's going to yeah. be super fun. Cause I'm going to get, cause when I do, when I suck at something, I want to get better at it. And I like the puzzle aspect of something as complicated as jujitsu. Like you're never going to be perfect at it. There's always going to be like levels of improvement to pursue. So it's like, that's like Olympic weightlifting was like that for me. A lot of other things are like that for me where it's like, I like pursuing something that I know I can never be perfect at. There's always technique or like things to learn or whatever things to work on. So yeah, man. And, 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 and in that there's a great metaphor for human existence. Yeah. You know, we're, we're going to, there are going to be things that we're terrible at, you know, and, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's all right. In fact, that's part of the joy of living. Yeah. And the discomfort, the uncomfortable is like where growth is going to happen when you get outside of that comfort zone. And it sounds cliche, but like pushing yourself into those uncomfortable arenas, like that's where you're going to grow. That's where you're going to get better at things and learn a whole lot of things about yourself. Well, and that's, that's where the, um, the idea of, you know, building self-esteem comes from because you're going to put yourself in a tough situation and then you're going to come out of it and you're going to say, well, that really wasn't that difficult. Yeah. I'll be damned. Yeah. 
like like imagine remember the the, the anxiety you felt when you were on the bus to boot camp mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and now all these years later you're like i could sleepwalk through boot camp. oh yeah are you kidding It'd me be a, <laughs> be a joke i did nine weeks standing on my head what, yeah. what? Yeah. Like I did I did Chiefs initiation for six weeks. I could do boot camp yeah. for nine. I'm uh, not worried about that. That was the hardest you know? thing I'd ever done in my life at the time. <laughs> exactly. And now yeah. you're like, man, remember when my first deployment was this and well, yeah. man, we overcame that. And then, you know, I had these personal struggles and then oh man, I was mm-hmm. in the hospital. But when you reflect, not out of an arrogant standpoint, but when you reflect on your own achievements and the difficult times, we realize that. Nothing brings people together like shared difficulty. Yeah. Yep. Except maybe food. Food brings people together always, but. Well, temporarily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say right. the, the suffering piece of it, like the, that's right. like, I could, it's the, the old, like, I don't know, adage, I guess, or like I could go. 20 years without seeing a buddy of mine from used to boat and then like run into them. And it's like, not even, we didn't miss a beat, you know, like you just like, we're right back there and the, the bond is just as strong. So like, I, yeah, I don't know that anything bonds people quite like suffering. No, I mean, truly, yeah. well, here's a great example. And this just happened and this will touch on many of the the things that we've been talking about over the last, uh, nearly two hours now, or mm-hmm. actually over two hours. Yeah. A little bit. So, I have a friend of mine um, that I haven't seen in 19 years. And we got our, our, our surface warfare pins together yeah. um, uh, on board USS John Paul Jones. And we went through the 9-11 deployment. We were in the Persian Gulf when 9-11 happened. Yeah. All right. And so we are bonded forever by that ship, that crew, that time, and that corner of the world. Yeah. And I haven't seen him in 19 years. But he posted a meme that I thought was reductive and stupid. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're on our, our social media platform, and I kind of, you know, I take the piss out of him a little bit for it. Yeah. But then we start having a dialogue, and I recognize that he's feeling something more. Yeah. And that thing is that his wife is essential, with air quotes. Right. Um, he is not. So he's at home, uh, and he's feeling isolated. Yeah. And lonely, and to a certain degree, demasculated as yeah. a man. Yeah. Now, at this point, this has all been made clear, and this is on a public forum for all of his friends and me to see. Mm-hmm. And so two of his buddies who are cliches um, start giving me the business about minding my own business, yeah. and he just was <laughs> feeling a certain way. And I said, hey, if you haven't read the follow-on here, like we're actually having a real conversation now. Yeah. Right? And – we started opening up about these things, about our fears, about because I was in a situation when um, you a- approached me to do the, the D Guts podcast. I was on deployment, yeah. um, and I, I get back, and once again, the world has changed. So, yeah. um, it's not the same as the nine eleven deployment when I got back in December and the whole universe was upside down. But <laughs> in a sense, there is a very real fear and anxiety in the air. You can light a match and strike sparks anywhere. Um, but it fascinated me that two of these buddies were giving me grief for, um, being weak and, and, you know, the, the, 
the vulgar term for a vagina and <laughs> st- stuff like this, because I was actually having a real conversation with this guy as he was opening up about the, the fears of being emasculated, about right. the, the, the anxiety that he can't be the father that he needs and that he's not, quote, essential. Yeah. And it fascinated me that one of his friends was a Navy hospital quorum. Yeah. And I said, this is interesting to me because one of your buddies, a guy you see every other weekend. And a guy that I haven't seen in 19 years opened up to me, but he's your pal. How come you're not having this conversation with him? Yeah. You know this guy. And what's more is you're a medical provider, man. You're a doc. <laughs> yeah. Because it requires a grown man to be vulnerable. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah. And I, the people that I really respect and admire the most are the ones um, who have been unafraid to announce sometimes to the world at large that they're fearful yeah. or that they have, you know, concerns and worries. And it brings a certain human element to it so that your, you know, your heroes are, are demythologized and in that they become even more beautiful as people. Yeah. And in having that real conversation with him, we both grew and he was able to let a real experience out of him. And Two guys who hadn't seen each other for 19 years, bonded together for all eternity, had a real conversation <laughs> in open so that all of his friends could see it without fear, without anxiety, and were both better for it. That's awesome. I wish that yeah. happened. Yeah, I wish that happened more, man. I definitely like I and I think that like like I said before, it's like it's getting more normal, but it's still not that. Yeah. Like it's just starting to turn, like to turn the corner towards, but um, I've definitely had conversations with guys that I wouldn't have had 10 years ago. Not, and not just because they weren't willing to have it, but because I wasn't willing or equipped to have it either. Um, and willing or equipped. Yeah. And I'm glad you said, or equipped because some guys just lack the mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and I say guys, but yeah. Every, yeah. Sailors. Like it's just, I, Cause I, that was one of the things that I definitely, I had a fear of too, which I, I talked to Grant Khan about. I talked to Amber Viola about, it. I talked to a lot of people where I'm just like, I think that's a, one of the biggest reasons that the leadership side of it is kind of fearful to engage in those types of conversations where you're getting vulnerable and you're talking about feelings. It's like, even if they're willing to have a vulnerable, intimate conversation with another human being, they don't feel like they have the tools to do it right where they're they're almost treading into the into the mental health professionals waters and they're like i'm not a mental health professional i don't know what to do with my hands like and they're scared that they're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing and make it worse or whatever so that's when you see the situations where people are just defaulting to you know go to medical or go to mental health and you know taking the gun away and and taking them off the watch bill and taking them away from the work center Cause they, it's right. like, it's a safest play, you know? And it's, I think it's out of a genuine concern and because they right. want you to get the best help possible, but it's also like, I don't think that that's always the best move, but then it's like, it's like, where do you draw the line? Cause it's <laughs> like, I understand that fear because I've had it and I've been there, but I also understand yeah. that you can, you can get really far by just having a very human conversation and, and it can benefit them a lot. And so it's like, I don't really know what the right answer is. I think I probably, I lean a little more towards just treat them like a human being and have a conversation. And then if it, if it goes hard and fast towards a place that I'm just super unequipped to handle, then I'll have another very honest conversation with that human being saying, look, this is 
beyond the scope of anything I'm equipped to handle. And I think we need to go talk to somebody that can help us with it. You know what I mean? And, um, I that think was there's a hard a, lesson. Yeah. That's, that's a hard lesson yeah. for a lot of junior, junior chiefs to learn. Yeah, for sure. Um, because it's like, Oh, you're the chief. Now you're the end all be all. Mm. And that's not realistic. Right. You know, that's just, and it's just not a realistic thing. So, um, and I, you know, I got stuck with that as a, as a, as a first class, I tried to take on too much one time and I really thought I was looking out for my best interest in, or my sailor's best interest in, you know, taking care of my sailors, whatever right. that actually means. <laughs> uh, and it turns out, no, I should have reported and talked to my chain of command about what was going on and realized that, yeah, this is way out of my purview and I have no business touching this anymore. Right. And Fortunately, that sailor got the help they needed and everything was cool in the gang. But yeah, I, I in that instance, I was acting out of ego and not out of genuine yeah. human concern. But even I would even say like even when acting out of genuine human concern, it's like it's still like you can have the best intentions possible and just really genuinely want to help somebody out and not be able to recognize the point at which it's like, OK, I need help. <laughs> Like I need, I need somebody <laughs> to help me help this person instead of just, right, I, just I need the me. Calvary, like right now. Right, right yeah. Now. Like yeah. recognizing that tipping point is the, is the thing that I think scares people the most is like, I don't know that I'm equipped to do it. I don't know if I would see the line as I passed it. Like I, I don't, I, I just don't know if I recognize it. Um, well, and, and recognizing your own limitations, um, as a human, as a leader, these are valuable skills to know. And right. I wouldn't even call it a skill, more of a soft skill than anything. But, yeah. Um, having that in your pocket is, you know, this is the point of no return and this is where I tap out. Yeah. Like, I, I got nothing here. This is not my field of endeavor, man. Yeah. And that's why we have experts. Yep. And that's, yeah. You know? And I like, I, I would say to leaders listening, it's like, yes, err on the side of caution, but like you have to at, like at least establish the rapport. I would, I would think. And again, oh, yeah. like you still got a chief, you still yeah, got a chief. Right. Man. I'm not gonna, I'm not even going to come close to being in the vicinity of giving mental health advice. And I'm going to disclaim that at the beginning and at the end, but like, <laughs> I just, there's, there is that me- the mechanism of just being a good person, like just being a good human and you, you, in, in, being a good steward of that relationship that you have and the responsibility that you have to those junior sailors. It's like, you got to have that relationship so that a, they're going to speak up when they do need help. B you're even able to have that conversation and, and be vulnerable and, and get to a point where you, you recognize, Oh, okay. I need help with this. And it's just like, I, I would say it's just like any other, other problem where it's like, I'm in a situation, sailor brings me a problem and there's some problems I can handle at my level. And there's some problems I need to go get the CMC. And it's the recognition of when that that line gets crossed. It's like there are times where I march into my CMC's office and tell him something. He goes, "Okay, fix it. And I'm like, "Okay, I just thought you would want to know. But apparently I can (laughs) fix this on my own. So it's like there's I I would say you still err on the side of caution, right? Like there may be a thing where um, when we're talking about human life, yeah, yeah. I I would say you have to and, and. Oh like, yeah, you have a moral imperative. Yeah, even when it's hard or uncomfortable, or or even burns that relationship to the ground, hopefully temporarily, because maybe with treatment they recognize you were just trying to help. But I have yeah. found that that is almost always the case. Yeah, um, I have found that um, initially there's going to be some hard feelings, and that's yeah. fair. Yeah, for sure. But- I, yeah. But also, I know when a sailor tells me that he you know he wants to put a shotgun in his mouth. Yeah, 
I'm like, okay, I'm going to need you to stay right here. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to be right back. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's going to be some hard feelings for a lot of those fears that we had mentioned. Yeah. You know, blowing a security clearance, what have you. But right. at the same time, um, almost always people do know when they, when they are wrong. People know when they are actually crying out for help. Yeah. Uh, whether they voice it or not. And this is why I have found that when I hold sailors accountable, I don't get a lot of grief because they're like, yeah, I screwed up. And yeah. anybody who I ever worked for will tell you, I was great at the culpability aspect of it. I was terrible at changing the behavior. <laughs> <laughs> like you're great at owning your mistakes, but you don't actually yeah. seek to not make those mistakes again. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I was yeah, I was stubborn as as I was a difficult person to lead, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think too like the I've noticed in just in my leadership experience as I start to get old and crusty, I got guys reach back to me um and have those types of conversations from a leadership perspective of Look at the time I didn't get it, you know, and at the time right. I thought you were just being a dick, you know, <laughs> like and I thought you were just a mean person. But I understand what you are doing now. And even though both of us made mistakes, it's like, I understand now that you were just trying to, to help me grow and, and mature. And so it's like, I, same thing with leadership stuff. Like I had a second class that he just was a corner cutting conniver, man. Like any mm. way he could make something easier or cut corners, like gun deck stuff to get home early. He was, he was the guy that was going to do that, but he also was very concerned about his image and was always trying to like glad hand and politic his way to an EP. And right. I just, he was so smart and he was, uh, he was willing to work hard if it was towards one of those goals. So I just, I, I spent, I think I had a little over a year with him before he transferred and I was a new chief and I just like, he, I wouldn't give him an inch, man. I, he did exactly what he was supposed to do, how he was supposed to do it. Or he did a bunch of rework. Those were his life choices. And it's like, that's how the flow chart went. It's like, you do it right or you do it over again until it's right. (laughs) And then that's how that's going to go down. And, uh, every, if I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I needed someone like somebody like that to hold me accountable at a younger age in my Navy career. If I, yeah. And had that happened to me, I would have grown up better. And he, yeah, he hated me. Like he, he left that <laughs> submarine cursing my name. And then he went to a pretty cushy shore duty and made first class. And I told him as he was leaving, I'm like, look, these are the reasons I did what I, I did. I understand your disdain for me. But what I also need you to understand is that I did it because you're going to get thrust into a, a leadership role where you're going to be either an LPO or more likely a leading CS at sea on a submarine by yourself with no chief. And you're going to be the guy and I need you to be equipped to do that successfully so that your sailors don't suffer as a result. And I don't think he believed me at the time, but then he, the, it exactly what I said ha- was going to happen. <laughs> happened. He goes back to a submarine. He's the lead by himself. No chief. He's got a division of sailors looking at him going, what's next CS one. And, uh, he, freaked out and was like, Oh, and he had an inspection coming up too. Um, so he, he freaked out and he was like, he basically just like devolved back to what would my, what would my chief tell me to do? Like what what, he devolved back to just doing what I had him doing for that, like 
16 months or 14 months or whatever. And then he got a hold of me after he did an above standards on the inspection and was just like, I get it now. <laughs> like I, mm-hmm. now I understand. And if you hadn't done that, I would have not done what I did here and thank you and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, Oh, there you go, man. And, um, I felt a lot better about it cause I questioned myself as it was happening. And afterwards I questioned myself in relation to a couple of other sailors, um, that I've luckily been able to talk to since and have those types of conversations with and just be like, you know, what did I do wrong? Because like I had to say, I did a, a spin the yarn called humble pie where I talk about this sailor that I had on my first chief's tour that I could not get to respond to anything. He just was a rock. Like he couldn't do mm. anything right. Uh, I couldn't find his name, his niche anywhere. I was trying to put him in a position to succeed no matter what it was. And, um, I just couldn't do it, man. I couldn't get him to respond. And, uh, the chief that he, that relieved me also a really young chief, but a really smart dude. He's I buddies with him to this day. Um, got him to respond. And then he went to another submarine after that and like flourished. And I was like, okay, mm. what did I, what did I screw up? Like <laughs> this was clearly me. So like, what did I, what, what did I do wrong? Um, and I luckily recently, he's a second class now and I got to go back and talk to him and, uh, he just finished up his first short duty, about to go back to sea and probably make first class and be in that type of role. And we talked and he, it was like, he was like, man, a lot of it was me. And I was like, uh, we kind of had the kind of, I'm like, eh, I could have done a better job though. Cause I think I recognize some of my missteps now, but I got to have that conversation with him to see if I was right about some of those things and like get his feedback. Yeah. On it. And it was really cool, really productive conversation, but that sounds it. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't get to have those you know, yeah. those conversations after the fact. Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, I mean, bridges are going to get burned and that's, that's a reality of human existence, but right. You know, I help often doesn't look like help. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it looks, it looks like our oh, chief's just being a, a, you know, a dick today and yeah. uh, uh, grumble, grumble, yep. grumble, mutiny, mutiny, mutiny. <laughs> um, and, and, and sometimes, yeah, we are being jerks because that's just how we were taught. And gosh darn it, that's just how it's going to be right now. Yeah. Um, but then there are the times when you're, you're you know, feeling a little more loose and you're more willing to let your sailors experiment with the end goal. And I'm okay with that too. But sometimes I just want things to be this way. Yeah. You know, and uh, I, I, I've earned that right as a chief. I'm not saying it's always <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I know that sometimes I can be a stubborn mule, but I wouldn't be a chief if I, if I <laughs> wasn't at times stubborn, you know, yeah. like we're going to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And that is a byproduct of military life. I think is that sometimes we have an end goal that is required. Yeah. And there is, this is one of those very few binary things. We either succeed or we fail and failure has drastic consequences. Yeah. yeah. So let's just forget about that option and let's just figure out how to win. Yep. Yeah. That's, you know, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And that's, I love those moments. I, I love those moments because I like pressure. I always yeah. have. But I also like the, the moments that allow us to build the skills that allow us to improvise at the highest level and do things that we didn't think we could do before. Yeah. Yeah, there is a. I mean, there's that whole, you know, 10,000 hours to make a master sort of thing. Yeah. And when I consider all the various forms of intelligence, whether it's, um, you know, spatial intelligence or mathematical intelligence or athletic intelligence, watching people improvise at the highest level of their form um, is a real joy. Yeah. And 
we see this primarily in the you know the athletic world, right? Because uh, that's you know it's got television ratings. Um, but when you see a sailor who is truly an expert at what they're doing, make it up as they go, because plan A, B, C, and D are all shot. Yeah. Um, E is out the window and F is what they're on now. And they're just making this up on yeah. the fly because we're out of the book now. Yeah. Um, and they, they pull it off and you're like, that takes so many hours of effort and skill of doing it the right way every single time mm-hmm. of, um, you know, a crusty chief making them do it again and yeah. do it again until it's by the book and, you know, up to and touching. Um, and then they pull something off and you watch the end result. I love yeah. those moments <laughs> so much. It yeah. just warms my heart to the nth degree, yeah. you know, like watching Wayne Gretzky bank a puck off of someone's skate into the net or watching Jordan do some of the things he did. Yeah. Yeah. Those are amazing. But that doesn't warm me up like watching the sailor take the reins of something that is broken and, you know, the exercise is shot and they turn it around just by sheer ability and force of will. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yep. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I was on a special project submarine and uh, some of the things that they asked us to do to support the mission, like timeline wise. And ju- it's, I'm just like, that's not possible. Like, and <laughs> turns out it is, but like you just had to be forced through like force the square peg through the round hole until it's round. Yeah. So I just, yeah, yeah I mean, reimagine some things about yep. how we're going to do this and get yep. really inventive. go super, super outside of the box, but it's, we just figured it out and I'm like, all right, but they, the, it worked because they gave us the freedom to do that as well. So it was, yeah, sure. It was good, but I, yeah, it's I don't fun. want to flip the podcast around on you, but the idea of a special project submarine sounds mm-hmm. incredibly interesting uh, to me. It, it is. Uh, I'm not at liberty to say much, but I believe yeah. you. Right, right. It's I mean, uh, very, we're, very we're cool. talking about. Yeah. We're, we're already talking about a, a, an aspect of the Navy that people mm-hmm. only know because of film and television, really. Yeah. And because uh, we don't know what happens beneath the oceans, yeah. you know, that's, <laughs> wait, I just don't know. And like you said, right. you're not at liberty to discuss these things. And that's what even makes it more intriguing. And yeah, cool. yeah. <laughs> right? no, it, it is. And I like that was by far and away the most rewarding job I've, I've done as far as like, like the A school thing I got the most out of job right. satisfaction wise in that I get to continue to see the fruits of my labor as I interact with those students. But um, it. The, this job was like hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Coolest thing I've ever done. Uh, don't want to do it. again. Don't want to do it again. Yeah. That's pretty much how I describe it to everyone. Cause it's like there was, it was one of those jobs where it's like you were never, ever, ever in doubt of the fact that you were valuably contributing to the nation's defense. Like it's just, oh, that's, that's awesome. It, yeah. You it's, and it made leadership infinitely easier, which I didn't recognize at the time until I went to my next submarine. Um, because you didn't, the juniors understood it too. So like, I didn't have to explain to a third class why we were working so late or why I had to be so demanding of, of their time and talent. Cause it's just like, they just knew like you just, you had to volunteer and screen and get all kinds of fancy security clearances and all this other crap. And it's just like, they just knew like, it was just an understanding with all the crew members. Like you kind of walked around with your chest puffed out a little bit because, you said what unit you were a part of and every other submariner is like, Oh, like, <laughs> and they're like, See, Oh, you're on that boat. Oh, and, and I'm what, like, and what, what I, what I dig is 
the people that I want, if I could handpick my squad, you know, if I could handpick a division or a platoon of sailors to go on an op with me, yeah. I would want the guys who have been busted up and beaten up. Yeah. And I want the guy who's who's been down and out. I want that homeless guy that you talked about. Yeah. I want that guy on yep. my squad because that, <laughs> that guy is going to figure out a way to survive. I yes. guarantee you yes. he is going to survive this. Mm-hmm. And I want the people who have battled their own demons yeah. because comparatively speaking, doing the job that you've been doing for 8, 10, 12 years, that's a piece of cake. Yeah. And if all you got to focus on is doing this job as well as you've ever done it, everything else gets the volume turned down, man. And these guys are prepared for it. Yeah. And so once again, you junior sailors who are going to listen to this, I want you. Yeah. I, 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 if, if I want you to go to your chain of command and say, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with this. It's hard. I need some help. Please help. And I promise you, once your recovery is complete and once you get back into the game, people like me, are going to want you to come work for them. Yeah, we're going to hundred percent. We're going to hunt you down, hundred percent, because we want you. I, I want the bad yeah. ones. I, I want man, the guys who have been through the fire, man. Yeah, not just for the reasons you're describing either, but because like, I, and this perfectly segues into probably my last question, and we can go over anything else that you want to too. But the I, me and Jeff Bayless talk about a, a road to redemption a lot. Like, um, basically, yeah. the the idea that anybody not just mental health cases but like the kid that i talked about with the cocaine like could there or should there or both like be a road to redemption for a sailor like that who was in a situation where intent wasn't really there he made some poor immature choices that led to him violating the substance abuse policy which is zero tolerance and that zero tolerance triggered this kid getting kicked out on his rear right and and because he violated that that like taboo it was like punch him in his face on his way out the door and he's like persona non grata now and it's like i i went out of my way to continue to talk to this kid and let him know if he needed anything or had questions about his transition or whatever to come find me in particular because i didn't want anybody else to shoo him out of the office or whatever because he was radioactive and just like i'll help you out man i'll help you do whatever you need to do to transition out and just letting this kid know that he's like you're still a human being and i still care about you you're i don't i don't hate you for what you did or you made a mistake humans make mistakes it's not a big deal um the should or could there be a road for redemption for a kid like that where it's like why not yeah, right and and that's how i feel about it but i like i i ask people about it and i'm just like look like i understand all the policy stuff and i understand why it exists but every case is unique in this situation in particular i feel like that kid could have went and chipped paint in the surface fleet or been like a a non special position of trust type sailor in a different like area of the Navy, maybe one that doesn't require a security clearance at like kind of the same path you took and still be a very valuable contributor to the Navy. And I, I, in his case, I'm very convinced that that's what would have happened. He would have been super grateful for the opportunity and he would have lit the world on fire. I mean, again, why not? Yeah. I just, I mean, cocaine and marijuana existed. Um, and we still won world war two. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we won World War II with our hands in our pockets and out of regulation haircuts. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, <laughs> no, I granted that's, you know, that's an extreme example. And I, and I yeah. get that. And I, yeah. you know, I did it more, you know, to make a point. But um, yeah, why not? Yeah. I mean, is the cocaine out of a system? Yes. Yeah. Um, 
is he harmful? Clearly not. His his you know productivity speaks to the fact that it didn't. Right. You know he was he's not an addict. This is a one time thing. Right. Can we bust him all the way down to E one? Sure. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, we we've got options. And, and I mean, just, is that even to the point I mean, of like having a having a page thirteen in his record that says if he has a single ARI or any substance abuse sniff of substance abuse or whatever, like then he's out of the navy. But he gets that second chance, and it's like he understands that anvil's dangling over his head, but he can stave that off by lighting the world on fire. Which I, I'm telling you, a guy like this, I really believe it would have happened. So like I. I I struggled with that a lot where I was like, I'm, am I the only one here that thinks we're mistreating this kid? Like, is this really what we're doing? Like, do you think this is good? And I said it like after the DRB and the mass, I like, I was in there with my cob and a couple other chiefs and was just like, are we really like, do you guys want to like go like burn it, the barracks down while he's in his room? Like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> like, what are we doing? Uh, th- this is a person like the accountability happened to captain's mast. He's going to get his dolphins removed by virtue of an instruction that says when he violates a substance abuse policy that that happens. He's going to get kicked out of the Navy with no benefits. Like all of these things are yeah. are happening by virtue of the zero tolerance, zero tolerance policy for for substance abuse. So why do we got to treat him like crap too? like why do we got to right. be mean? It doesn't he, like he already he already knows. he's Yeah. And he's already destroying himself like in his head. He's already beating himself up more than we ever could. So why you know, I've, I've had I've had those conversations too with with sailors who who screwed up mm-hmm. came to me with their you know their hat in their hand and practically in tears yeah and you know we we, we go you know through the process and I'm like you're the only one not yelling at me and it was like you already feel yeah. bad yeah there's nothing more I what can am teach I, you in this circumstance what am I going to do to you that you're not already doing to yourself when nobody's around right. you know like I yeah. Yeah. You've, you've already crawled inside your own head mm-hmm. and you've already, you know, flagellated yourself to the point where you don't even want to show up in the morning. Yeah. Um, cause you're afraid of what's going to happen next. And you know, there's no need for that. You know, you already know and our minds, and this is the part about mental illness that really is awful. It's so insidious that our minds will do worse things to us than the reality almost always will. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we, we are always so concerned about the possibility of failure that the reality of failure is almost a letdown. You're like, oh, yeah. I'm still standing. Yep. Like the house is still here. The command is still the command. Everybody's fine. What really happened? Yeah. You know, and, you know, I had this conversation with um, a department head when I was at the defense information school um, who was very much against vulgarity in our own cubicles. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a radio or a television broadcaster representing your branch of the service on air over the Armed Forces Network or the American Forces Network, yeah, I can get not swearing. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But when we, we had this conversation and I said, there are men and women in that room who have dropped bodies. Yeah. And when you drop an F-bomb, nothing actually happens. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Now I understand professionalism is professionalism, but I would also argue that professionalism depends upon the profession. Yeah. Yeah. I, and again, we're the armed forces, not the unarmed forces. We don't sell delicious Girl Scout cookies. Yeah. You know, we, we are the armed forces and sometimes that requires, well, force. Yeah. I definitely, I had that part of that NSW tech conversation was we talked about like the situation based professionalism, like if you're 
if you're in the shop and you're just with your your shop people, it's like chief and the division. Is the world going to come to a screeching halt if uh, CS1 calls CSC by his first name? Probably not, right? It's not going to stop spinning. And if if that's a thing that you feel adds value to your ability to communicate and the rapport you have with your division, and you feel like it help, helps build trust in in those relationships, then why not? But then when we're in a in an environment where um, you know you're interacting with out, anybody outside of the shop, then it's chief and CS one or whatever, um, sure. and, that, and it's something they do in their community already so it's like it's part of the culture and so it's like is it a good or a bad thing and that's kind of what he was saying is like it, it depends like it's like my sure, favorite line course. when we're talking about anything is it it, it depends um well, and like and once again, hands in your pockets speaks, same thing like yeah that, it I depends. Mean, and, well, and that speaks to the non-binary nature of human existence yeah and that's why by and large i don't agree with you know kicking that kid out in that particular instance i don't know right. all the particulars and that's right. fine but yeah, I understand the policy is the policy and zero tolerance is what it is. I, yeah, I've been in the game long enough to know. I got it. Yeah. But at the same time, why not? Yeah. What's the harm here? Right. You know, what, it, what, and, are, what are the second, third and fourth tier effects of this? Right. You know, what, what, if, what if the Bureau of Personnel, you know, released a NAV admin that said uh, commanding officers will evaluate the zero tolerance policy on a case by case basis? Yeah. Which I... I, that's where I don't see the downside exactly. Like you'd have to build a policy structure around it that ensures that some CO just likes a kid (laughs) and like no matter how egregious the offense and they keep them around because the policy allows them to do that. There'd have to be all kinds of structures and, and fail safes and screenings and whatever built in from outside entities and blah, blah, blah. But sure, because we we we're not naive. We know that right. there are full time drug users in in right now who just haven't for been sure. caught yet. Yeah, for sure. Right. I mean that that's real. Um, um, so yeah, I think that there'd have to be a bunch of structure built around it. But like, if there was and it was well thought out, I don't see a what. I don't see the why not. Like, I don't see a reason why not at all. I just I see so much value added for all the reasons you talked about. Where it's like, I want all of the like. Statue of Liberty, like, give me your sick and you're hungry. And like, I want those people. I want people that have been through that type of stress and suffering and adversity to come to my team. And even like the, I was talking to my CMC one day, uh, dudes like CMC Superman break glass in case of emergency. Like he's amazing. And, uh, he, me and him were talking about like me being a cob and we're talking about, um, when he was a cob on a boat, uh, he was on a second cob tour, but he said both times he was like the squadrons, um, dumping ground for problem children. But he looked at it as like the best thing ever. He was just like, yeah, bring it, like, give them to me. Like they clearly, they haven't had quality leadership and like, they need to come down here and be a part of this family. And then they'll, then they'll come around. And so like anytime, any second chance sailor or disciplinary issue or whatever, came up it was like they were just picked up the phone called him and were like hey you want another one and he's like yup <laughs> and it, it was it was the culture that he built around that concept it like created this little island of misfits that did an amazing job contributing to the national defense because well, and the, 
And the thing yeah. too is they can help each other out. Right. Because they know what the game looks like. Yeah. They know when their homeboy is hurting. They know when something is wrong. Yeah. And they're and not been they're there. not so sheltered or quiet to not raise the flag. Right. Right. And that was like you know, they've seen it. They know. Same thing with me. Like I when I got the opportunities and it, like probably not as many as he has, but I, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine when I was on that uh on my last boat. Um he had a kid that uh, kept getting in trouble off work, but he was amazing when they were at sea. <laughs> he was just like, kept yeah, having that AR- was me, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. Yeah, <laughs> kept having ARIs and stuff. And uh, the Commodore was going to kick him out of the Navy, and then for whatever reason, he had a change of heart, and he told the squadron CSCs, like, if you can find somewhere to put this kid in the next three weeks, we'll give him another cha- another shot. Um, so he called me up and was like, Hey, I, I got this kid. And I'm like, fuck, send him down, man. Like uh, worst case scenario, he does a deployment with me and then we get home and he gets in trouble again and he goes home. So like he gets that shot and I get that help and we'll see what happens. Best case scenario is exactly what happened where he came, he came there, became like my ALPO got mapped, just like crushed it. Didn't have any other disciplinary issues, even though there were bumps in the road that I handled at my level that may or may not have gotten him kicked out of the Navy on a different boat. But like he had a few bumps, but we worked through it all. And yeah, I mean, he's, he's doing great now. And all of the, the stressor that he had was a personal relationship that has since like resolved itself, like no longer exists. And so that stressor that was causing those problems is out of his life now too. So it's like, she's just, it was amazing. And it's like, I, that cleared the road for, yeah. Me. Getting that type of an opportunity. And like, I, I'm just like, yeah, bring it, bring them down. I like, I love that stuff. And it's not, it's some of it's selfish. Like, cause like, I'm like, oh, well they, yeah. they haven't been led by me yet. So bring them on down and right, we'll, right. we'll square this away. But it's like, I just love being in a position to, um, prove the point that there's no such thing as a lost cause and that people that have been through these experiences have a lot of value to add still. They just need to be given the opportunity to contribute. And once they believe like when they really believe that, like when the intent's there and they, and they trust that, no, I really, I really want you to be a part of this team. This isn't just like a, a thing where you got forced on me and I'm going to act like you're a burden. No, like complete opposite. And once he, and he was real tentative at the beginning, but once he believed it, it was like, he was all in man. And he loved it. Yep. And uh, I need you in this game, man. Yep, Let's go. Yeah. Lace up your glove. Let's go. Come on. Yeah. Got to do that a few yeah. times. It's awesome. It is a good feeling. You have one more question? Uh, no, that was it, man. Unless you got any save rounds, alibis you want to you want to oh, work God. through, man. Um, <laughs> well, I think that uh, at least for me, the seriousness with which now we are approaching mental health mm-hmm. um, in the armed forces is crucial. Yeah. And I mean, the first recorded case of PTSD, I think, comes from the Peloponnesian War. Okay. You know, when, when, when a, an Athenian soldier was talking about experiencing blindness because he saw his friends die in battle. Yeah. And when the sergeant major of the Marine Corps can say, yeah, I have PTSD and I go to therapy regularly. Yeah. Like, what more do you need? Right. Like, do you, do you need a like, bigger permission slip? Like, <laughs> that's the sergeant major of the Marine Corps. Yeah. Like, that's what they do, you know? And yeah. so, when I know that we get lost in our own little worlds and they can be very weird and difficult and dark to navigate. But when we find one person who's willing to listen and willing to help, we start to realize that that world that we were 
stuck in that we thought was so small is actually significantly larger than we possibly realized. And I would just implore people to try and be that person. Yeah. I just be think that one talking about it is, is a huge deal. Just, just talking about it in general. Normalize it. Yeah. Normalizing the conversation is, is kind of the, the mantra, if any, that I live by in this space is just like, just talk about it. Just talk about it with anybody, like hopefully a professional, if that's what's needed, but like just normalize the conversation so that maybe you just start a conversation with a random human being, whether it's like a second class in your shop or your chief or an officer or whatever, and they have the knowledge to get you to whatever resource that you need, but just talk about it. Like it's going to help and, and, a little. And have, and have the stones to have that conversation in public. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool have, too have that. for the, for the people that are able like the, like you, right. Or like Grant Khan or any, I've talked to a few mm-hmm. other people, like the people that are able and willing to, to share their stories like you're doing right now. Like I can't even, it's so fucking valuable, man. Like just, it, <laughs> it's just to hear it just for a, a some seaman or third class or second class or whoever that's sitting there right now, listening to this, listening to your story and your perspective and the tools that you use and the experiences that you went through and where you're at now and et cetera. Like just hearing it, it, it makes a huge impact on people. Like, um, it's one of the coolest things when, when Jeff does his little talks about his experiences, it's just like, yeah, yeah. you look at the comments on his video and it's just like, good God, like the kids telling him that he saved their life. Like, just by sharing his own experience. Like he didn't even talk directly to them or have a direct interaction with them. He just shared his story. (laughs) That was it. And it's like that kind of an impact can be made. So like anybody that is able and willing, like talk about it. And if you need a platform, hit me up. Like I'm happy to do it. We got you. Yeah. We got got avenues. So yeah, man. Thanks a ton. I have have no problem. Oh, it was my pleasure. I assure you. Yeah. And this is all for me. This isn't, this isn't even personal now. This is just me chiefing. Yeah, man. It's, you know, and I, and I love it. Yeah. Love it. That's awesome. I was super. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. for it's sure. So awesome. Super happy to, to have you on, man. I'm really, really grateful that you were willing to do it. Uh, cause I was like, 100%. I was always, I'm always a little worried when I reach out to people about sensitive topics that they're like, not going to be willing. Um, with, cause I'm just like, man, there's so much value there, but it's selfish you know, <laughs> in a way. So, uh, I really no, appreciate I you too. doing it. You want to, uh, it, if you're willing for, for people to reach out and contact you, how would they do that? Oh, uh, you can find me at um, uh, jason.a.thompson4 at navy.mil. Awesome. Uh, you can find me at dukewilbury at gmail.com. That's D-U-K-E-W-I-L-B-U-R-Y at gmail. Um, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm, I'm available. Yeah, you can find me. Definitely. And then uh, just for those audio files in the music realm, you want to you wanna plug the ah. project that you're that you're working on now? Uh, so I, uh, own and operate the ear candy update podcast. Uh, we explore themes in music, new music that should be played on modern commercial radio, but it is not. Uh, we unpack a lot of really cool music history and stories that make up your favorite songs. Like the fact that the house of the rising sun was a real house. (laughs) That's awesome. Yep. That's a real thing, man. And, um, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. man. Appreciate it. Definitely. And I, I got a lot of friends in the chief community who are going to be happy to share this podcast. Oh uh, yeah. I, I always appreciate any, uh, anybody doing that to get the word out to all the people that need it, man. So thanks again. Hey, keep up the great work, brother. Thanks. 
And that's it. That's that's what I got for you. Uh, that interview, uh, again, one of my favorites that I've ever done. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Got a lot out of it. Um, if anyone needs anything, always, always, always reach out. Uh, I put Chief Thompson's contact information in the show notes. Uh, suicide prevention line and other resources for mental health issues and awareness are in the show notes. And if you ever need anything, even if you're struggling, I highly encourage you reach out to me, reach out to Chief Thompson, reach out to people like Chief Grant Khan, who we've done an episode with in the past and who is always available on all social media platforms. Reach out to the Saving Sailors group. I encourage you to check that out. Anything. Uh, just don't be afraid to shoot up a flare if you need somebody to talk to. Um, don't ever think you're alone in this because you're not. And I hope that if nothing else, Chief Thompson's story demonstrates that to you is that it's it's always OK to reach out and have that conversation. Uh, if you need anything from us, hit us up. Don't give up the ship podcast at Gmail dot com. You can Facebook message us at don't give up the ship podcast or you can DM us on Instagram at DGUS podcast or on Reddit. Uh, same thing. We, we've got a sub there, DGUS podcast, and then you can find uh, me on the platform at DGUS podcast as well. If you want to support us, we really appreciate it. You can do that by uh, checking out dguspodcast.com slash shop, picking up a shirt or some stickers or something. Uh, and then you can also do that by just rating us on iTunes, uh, reviewing us on iTunes, sharing the content on social media, shooting somebody the podcast link, whatever. Um, it always helps just to get the word out organically uh, and just let people know that the platform is here if they need anything from leadership development and education. Uh, perspective, um, or just need somebody to, to reach out and ask a question. So if you need anything from us, don't be afraid to reach out. And that's it. That's what I got for you today. Thank you so much for listening and don't give up the ship. <laughs>